What's up, everybody? This is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking. My guest for this episode is Lance Pierce. Lance is one of the smoothest sleight of hand practitioners in the world, and he's also one of the kindest men I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. In the episode, we discuss the importance of details and subtlety when crafting routines, how your magic will change as you grow, and Lance shares some amazing stories about his time with Roger Klaus, Michael Skinner, Bill Malone, and others. I love Lance so much, and I'm delighted that we were finally able to make an episode happen. It's been a long time coming. This is a great episode, peppered with Lance's wit and humility, and I know you're going to love it and learn from it. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram and Facebook by searching Magical Thinking Podcast. If you want to learn magic, cardistry, or a couple of quick bar bets, head over to artofmagic.com. Art of Magic is the premier destination for learning the fundamentals of sleight of hand technique, as well as some of the most advanced magical applications of dexterity in the world. While you're at it, you'll probably need a deck of cards or two, so head over to artofplay.com to get what you need. Art of Play also provides a curated collection of games, puzzles, and other amusements which offer epiphanies for the curious mind. Art of Play just recently stocked one of my favorite puzzles of all time. It's called the Dan Lock. You should check it out. I absolutely love it, and I share it with people every chance that I get. Anyway, get into the episode, and if you have any magic-related questions or comments on the show, let me know what you think by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com, or you can reach me at my personal email, me at elliottarrell.com. There's three T's in the center. This is Lance Pierce, one of my favorite people and magicians of all time. I know you're going to love the episode. Get into it. Let me know what you think. Enjoy. What do you do for work? You hit record. I I saw it. I saw it. I did. (laughs) I'm a wage slave. Okay. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) I am, uh, uh, the, the actual job title is, a, uh, uh, what is my job title? <laughs> Management Program Analyst. What does that mean? Exactly. Exactly. I wonder the same thing. It doesn't mean really anything. It's, uh, it's not a management position, but I do work, work in a, an association with my management. And, uh, you know, we have a structured organization where we have a business office at the near the top level, right underneath the director. And uh, the business office... Wait, are you describing a pyramid scheme? <laughs> yes, it's a... Exactly. But the business office is a part that offers administrative services within the organization to help the rest of the organization provide services to our customers. Mm-hmm. So I'm up in the business office and I handle things like sorry about that I handle things like uh, data analysis metrics tuition assistance what did you study how, programs. how what long did I study you doing this how do you have the expertise to do these things uh, by doing it oh okay. I, I've, I've never really gone to college I've taken a couple of courses that I was interested in college but that's about it so I'm not degreed and I'm not educated I'm just kind of you know slumming it all my life so everything I know like how to write access databases or how to do this uh, I just either read books on or Googled. So, okay, that went well. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being on the show. Yes, exactly. Um, Should I move up? Should this be like delicious dish? Oh, smell those. Let's do an ASMR (laughs) podcast. Are you, have you, are you familiar with that? That whole thing with delicious dish? No, ASMR. No, I am not. So there's this, this fad of things where, um, Pretty girls will go on YouTube and mm-hmm. put microphones up next to the camera. Okay. And then they'll whisper it. 
and it it's this sounds like a total fucking waste of time uh, people <laughs> it like it, it, it there's this biological response that happens in people where they start to like shiver and tingle. really yeah it's real serious? weird i'm dead serious huh interesting my roommate in college introduced this yeah. to me is it because it's so creepy like you imagine yourself at three in the morning when it's dark and you're all alone in your room and <laughs> you hear these noises i mean what's going on i neurologically speaking i really don't know honestly i think it probably has something to do with like the specific uh, I, the texture of the sound maybe it's like hmm. if somebody lightly touched you with a feather on the back of your neck mm -hmm. i don't know I get tingles sometimes when I touch specific textures. I would imagine it's the same kind really? of way. Yeah. I think you just made me realize I'm totally dead inside. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Well, thanks for the revelations. Uh, <laughs> You're welcome. I'm sorry it took so long. <laughs> and I apologize to your audience for dropping an F-bomb, but uh, I'm pretty plain spoken, so. That's one of my yeah. favorite things about you. My really? first experience of you mm -hmm. was at the second Magic Convention. The second Magic Convention you uh, ever so went to? This The first Magic Convention I ever went to. Sorry. The okay. second Magic Con. Oh, okay. Um, and it was late at night. And my best friend, David Yannick, and I, who I'd not yet met, mm -hmm. were sitting next to each other yeah. across from you and Jared. Yeah. And you two were going back and forth telling jokes. Ah, Okay. And it was amazing. I seem to remember that night. Yeah, that was fun. That was a fun uh, night. Yeah. So were the jokes um, clean? No, of course not. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I usually check my environment first. I guess I wasn't too aware that night. No, it was great. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, it, it was amazing. Um, <laughs> I don't even know where to start with you because... Now, why am I so difficult? That's a great question. Mm -hmm. And I don't know... I'll, I don't, do, I'll do the interviewing here. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is. I, I just like... There's so little that I know about you mm -hmm. just generally, but there's so much that I respect you for. Okay, and so, so then, I, that'll have that'll continue until you know more about me. Exactly, yeah. and so I'm I'm really treading the line <laughs> of whether I want to go there. Or not. Right, right. I, I get it. I get it. Like I could disappoint you in so many ways. So many ways. So many ways. Don't meet your heroes, kids. <laughs> um, first, I want to say again, thank you for doing this. It really means a lot to me. No problem. And I also appreciate that you listen to some of the episodes and that you seem to enjoy the show. I listen to most of them. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't listened to all of them because, you know, time interferes. Uh, sure. it, my life has its own cadence that I don't really fully appreciate sometimes. And uh, so I don't get to hear or read everything I want to. Mm -hmm. But I very much enjoyed your podcast. Thank very you. much. And uh, certain people, you've interviewed a lot of my friends. Yeah. And I'm listening to this. I'm thinking, this is a really great experience to hear people I know get inside their heads and try to explain what they're thinking about certain things. It's very fascinating. Now, I don't know about, you know, the general listener, if they don't know these people as well as you and I do. Sure. But I find it just fascinating. It's very, very cool. I, so I thank you I for doing it. I think it's good. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, so with that in mind, mm -hmm. how do you feel about coming in and doing it after you've listened to the show? Because most of the people that I talk to have never listened to it. Well, um, you know, I'm the kind of guy that the first question that comes to my mind is, what is wrong with you? Uh, what is there? I mean, I don't know. I guess we'll try to uncover what I might have to say that you might find interesting. But I'm having trouble fathoming what that is at the moment. But we'll explore and see if anything. We'll pops dig up. into it. Yeah. Okay. I'm Well, so I first you have developed this. OK, so we'll say this. We're at Pebblepalooza 6. Yes. Uh, which is a convention that spawned out of an online forum that you started called the Magic Pebble. Right. 
And this is my favorite place to be in the year. Oh, you're so sweet. I mean, <laughs> I you. truly mean it. And I was talking to Kent. I was talking to Kent outside yeah. earlier and he's yeah. like, you know, this and maybe a couple other small things are the only mm-hmm. things I go to because this yeah. is like, I mean, you say it in your emails. This is a house party. Yeah. That's happening in a yeah. hotel. And, uh, you know, people call it the convention and I'm not going to argue with them about it, but I really don't think of it as a convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a, it's a gathering. It's just if, if my house were big enough, we would be doing it there. So it's more like a hangout or a house party. I like house party, yeah. a gathering, a get together, whatever you want to call it. You yeah, know? yeah. But we definitely, I don't think we follow what is a standard format for a magic convention. And, uh, it's really, you know, most magic conventions are about going there and seeing the events, mm-hmm. sitting in your nice rows as you watch somebody lecture or perform. And uh, we're, uh, Pebble Palooza isn't wholly about that. We do have speakers, but they just kind of get in the way. It's really all about the sessioning, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> I love the speakers. I mean, um, and uh, um, I asked when we were first thinking about doing this before we ever did our first one, do we want to have speakers? And everybody said, yes. So I said, okay, we're going in that direction. How many speakers over the course of two days would you like? And numbers floated up and then we took a poll and everybody voted and it came out to four. So we have two speakers spread, uh, two speakers each of two days. So that's how that came about. But even if we didn't have the presenters, um, I don't think it would change anything. I think everybody would still have a great time just hanging and uh, showing each other tricks because that's really the main focal point here. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Yeah. One of the things that I like about it is that uh, because of the nature of the forum, mm-hmm. which is kind of anything goes for the most part, um, this convention and the speakers in general, like they're being baptized by fire like this yeah in a loving way right like the the crowd is rowdy and playful and can be and yes but they know when to straighten up of course right sure yeah um but i love that's my favorite thing about this it's like you go to a thing Mm -hmm. and you see somebody lecture and you start to fall asleep and everybody else is kind of falling asleep here Mm -hmm. you know it's like there's a there's a, a real conversation yeah. happening in the room. This is a, I consider this a happening. Yeah, because like everybody's involved, everybody's participating. Yeah, and I, I like that. I think there's a higher level in, of engagement than most places you go to. Yeah, uh, I, I don't I don't take credit for it. I think it's just in the nature of the group, mm-hmm. the, the people who are who they are, and we're just lucky to have this particular group of people. You know. Yeah, but I mm-hmm. yes I mm-hmm. I agree. But you certainly had a hand in fostering that community. Well, um, I tried. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I did have kind of certain goals in mind. So uh, if, if you want to break it down how we got here, is that what you're, where you're going with this? Yeah. Okay, all right. So around 2000, I'm going to guess around 2004, 2005, probably closer to 2005. So I thought to myself, we have other magic boards out there, and some of them are pretty big. And I'm not, I don't want to name any by name, but I'm looking at some of these boards. I'm thinking um, several of these boards are clearly the way they are because they take on their tone based on who's running the board. Mm-hmm. OK, uh, this can be good or bad, depending on who's running the board. Right. Yeah. So there was one forum where um, I've, I, in my mind, conversations really had trouble. Um, in some cases, not in all cases, uh, going where they needed to go because whoever was running the board had a habit of just deleting any post he didn't like. Mm-hmm. Right. So there was uh, that going on, which in, uh, to me seems to um, stilt conversations a little bit. It makes it difficult for people, especially if they disagree with whoever's running the board mm-hmm. uh, and 
if they speak out, then your post can just vanish. I don't think that's the healthiest environment. Uh, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying if you want free-flowing conversation, you need to let people free-flow conversate, yes. so to speak. <laughs> okay. But how do you change that? So how do you get a board in place where people can talk and not feel um, like for some reason they can't say anything they want to say? But at the same time, there's a risk if you let people say anything they want to say. You can run into all kinds of difficulties in human relations, so mm-hmm. to speak. So you do have to have some ground rules in place. So I, I thought, well, we'll try this. I'll download some software that's easy to do. It's free. And I'll set it up and we'll just bring people in and see what happens. Okay. I always kind of had in mind to eventually make the board subscription based which it is now where people mm-hmm. have to register to log in and there's an approval process but at first you can't you can do that if you already know who you want in it and you reach out to those people directly but even if you do that it's a very slow process getting people on uh, because you're working with that particular method so what I basically did was I left it open where anybody could just come on the board create an account and they're there right because I had a long range plan of um trying to, I don't want to say I wanted to correct that, but put some things in place where things would kind of uh, improve themselves, Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. So I set this board up in place. Now, nobody knew about it. So I went on the Genie board and a couple of other places. I said, I've got a playground. Check it out. And that's all I said. Here it is. Here's the URL. And it was a forum. And at that time, I didn't have a name for it. It was just called the Lance Pierce Magic Forum because I didn't know what to call it. It was an an experiment, a social experiment. And I didn't care if it succeeded or it failed. We're just going to see what happens. So everybody's coming on. Everybody, but people who are interested are coming on. And, we, you know, we get some known names signing on. And I can tell they're reading things and checking things out. And a little bit of conversation is going. And we got, you know, uh, a nominal base worked out. And this went on for about, mm, I'm not really sure now at this point, year, maybe a year. And then I started to put s- uh, slowly other things in place. And at one point, we closed the doors and we said, anybody who comes in from this point forward needs to be approved. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now you've got the gates closed. And this isn't to be elite. It's just to reach this final forum that I kind of had in mind where you had this forum that wasn't governed by whoever was running it, but was governed by the people who participated in it. Yeah. Right. So, um, so we closed the gates and we had this base of people in there and they weren't all... I, you know, it's hard to say this in a way that's not elitist, but they weren't all the exactly the right people mm-hmm. because you just weren't letting anybody in. So the solution at that point was to raise the level of conversation as high as you can. So I started starting conversations on, let's say, the theory behind coin shells and, uh, you know, managing magic down to the finest details, things like this. And the guys who found that kind of topic fascinating um, kept up and we got some really good conversational tracks going. And this is probably back in 2006 and seven. OK. And uh, but when you do that, when you raise the level of conversation as high as you possibly can and not get too abstract that people, you know, don't even want to participate. But, Delays but, over. But, but yeah, exactly. But just get something going, something meaningful happening. Then what will happen is the people who aren't fully engaged by that kind of conversation will either shut up or drop out. Yeah. Which is event, which is actually al- almost immediately started happening. And eventually we were left with a group of core people who are always there and always participating at a really high level. And uh, from that point forward, once we had that, it was anybody who comes in needs to be um, invited by somebody who's already on the board. Mm-hmm. And then we'll put it up to a vote by everybody else who's on the board. And again, 
that wasn't to be elitist, but we wanted to make sure that anybody who came in was capable not only of uh, contributing to the group, but getting along with the group. So, so by having sponsorships where everybody who came in was invited by somebody who's on the board, that person was being sponsored. You know, spon- when, when somebody says, uh, when, you're, when, you, when you tell somebody that you are sponsoring this person, they're a little more judicial about who they pick to sponsor. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So you tend to get people who are carefully selected. And uh, even now, even now in 2018, and we're talking 13 years later, so this has been all around for a little while now. Um, even now, it's a very small board. It only has like 240 members. But the whole point was not to make it a big board or grow it. it, it the whole point is not growth. The whole point is um, uh, sustainability mm-hmm. and keeping it going for as long as it'll go. And you don't worry about how many you have, but by you worry about whether the people you do have can make it a good place. And I think we've gotten there. I think the conversation is generally at a pretty good level. Um, we have a mix of rowdy hum- body humor and rowdy behavior, yeah. um, but all good natured stuff. None of it of course. is very antagonistic. Mm-hmm. And we have a mix of that with the high intellectualism that some of the guys seem to like. And there, are, there have been in the past some really, really good topics going on. I mean, stuff that I would just, this, wow, this is great. I've never, Curtis Cam, who's a, one of the best contributors, he's like, he posts something, I'm like, I never thought of that. It's fantastic, you know? Uh, and, and so another thing we try to do to make sure that uh, things go as freely and as flowingly as they can is to have as few rules as we possibly can. So we keep it simple. Mm-hmm. Be civil, you know? Don't get in anybody's face about anything. You can discuss politics or religion or anything you want, but respect each other. And if you don't, then it's not really up to me to fix it as the guy who hosts the forum. It's up to everybody who participates to get this straightened out. Mm-hmm. And very rarely have I ever had to step in and actually say something or do something. I've never had to ban a member yet. Okay, Early on, before we had those particular policies in place, we had some really a couple of really bad dust-ups. I don't even know if you were on the board at that time. I don't think so. Yeah. but And this happened repeatedly, but always between the same people. All right. But we eventually got that um, to a point where these people either dropped away or stopped. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, the board has been very stable, very stable. We've had maybe one little deal where I'm like, mm, is he gigging that guy? Is he really serious about what he's saying? But uh, and once in a while, I may get behind the scenes and say, are you really upset about this? Because if you are, you guys need to probably talk about it between each other. Yeah. Yeah. But beyond that, there's I do no moderation. I don't delete posts. I don't remove threads. Um any of that stuff. I, I do practically nothing. <laughs> it's really <laughs> close to a labor-free job, you know, So and I've enjoyed it very much. And I feel very blessed and fortunate to have the group of people we have. We've got some really good talent on that board. I like to feel that we have probably a lot of the best magicians in the world there. I think so, too. Yeah. And you talked about longevity. What is it that you think is your ultimate goal for the forum? That's just it. I still, at this point, I, I knew I, what I wanted it to be like, but I don't have an ultimate goal as far as an outcome. Mm-hmm. It, it's either going to last for as long as it lasts, which could be um, beyond my lifetime. I, you know, I've already, I've, already, I've already given key people um, administrators' privileges. So if I already get hit by a bus, get, by a bus mm-hmm. tomorrow, and I've been checking the schedules, okay, <laughs> but... If something were to happen to me, <laughs> these three people could keep things going if they wanted to. Yeah. If they don't, then they could either turn it over to somebody else and grant administrators privileges to other people who are willing to step in. But it's up to the group to figure out a way to um, 
do what they want that what they feel needs to be done with the board mm -hmm. and you know it could fizzle out in six months or it could go on for another you know 100 years why is it fulfilling to you to have a place like this um it comes down to the people i really love the fact that this group of people are as um high quality a group of people as they are and i don't mean just their talent or their skill with playing cards and coins they're great people they have character they have good personalities they're respectful they're intelligent I, you know I, w I could list adjectives all day long but until somebody gets knee deep with them you don't really appreciate what i'm saying mm -hmm. and you know even when i get up in front of the group here at pebble palooza which is a live version of the magic pebble right yeah. that's what that was supposed to be um, and i tell people i'm standing there when we're doing our opening comments i'm telling you guys how much i love you and how much i appreciate you just for being the way you are and you guys probably think i'm just blowing smoke up your butts but i mean it because you guys are the greatest group of guys and pebble palooza wouldn't be what it was Without you, I could bring in a whole different group of people and Pebble Palooza would be like the worst thing in the world. Mm -hmm. It's only because of you guys that makes it what it is. You know, the speakers, eh, they're good. They're great. You know, and I'm not dissing the speakers. They're wonderful. No, of course not, yeah. You know, but we've had many cases where I've asked somebody to come in and speak and he would say, immediately say yes, just because he wanted to hang with the guys. Yeah. You know, and to me, that's a great thing. That's an amazing thing because, um, uh, you know, we are able to attract people to come and actually help us out by presenting to the group, not because we are making it worth their while financially, because we really can't. We really run on the tight budget, but because they just want to be there. And I love that aspect of it, that people will come in and speak just because they want to be there. You know, in that sense, they're just another attendee who are not paying the registration fee because they're contributing in a different way. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's it's really something special. I, yeah. How did you get such a big heart, Lance? It's enlarged. It's I'm talking enlarged. to my doctor about. It. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you eat a lot of steak, a lot of fatty stuff. No, no I don't know. I, well, I mean, like you, know. you, you contribute to magicians in a way that is incredibly helpful, especially mm -hmm. like young people. Mm -hmm. Like some of the early magic experiences I had where I was around older magicians, they were very condescending. Mm -hmm. They weren't very helpful. They didn't want to contribute to a new magician. Mm -hmm. And I've brought people to this convention specifically from all different levels of magic. Mm -hmm. I'm like, this place is the best. Everybody's cool. You know, you're going to have a blast. And everybody's very welcoming, especially you. And well, that's because they're paying me money. No, I'm just <laughs> not that much money. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> it's not worth that. <laughs> but, but I mean, how how are you just kind of passing along what was given to you or you contributed to in, in a profound way when you were younger? You know, everything, um, everything that I have in magic materially and otherwise was given to me. I, I don't, you know, I think I guess everybody brings something of themselves to it, but I wouldn't be where I am or who I am without the people who have helped me get there. You know, there are people like Roger Klaus, Michael Skinner, Bob White. Um, Bill Malone, one of my best friends in the world. I can't tell you how much counsel he's given me over 30 years, 35 years. Now. I'd have to do the math. But um, and, and he's one of my best friends. He, he, no, he's my best friend in the whole world, you know. Uh, but, you know, it's because people have helped me. And Bill and I have talked about this. You know, we, we came up as young guys under the tutelage. Bill, of course, under Ed Marlowe mm -hmm. and myself under Roger and primarily and, and, and people that I've met only because Roger helped me meet them. Right. And um, 
So Bill and I benefited from those experiences, and what good does it do magic to hold it and keep it to ourselves? That's just selfish, you know? And now we're both older. Bill is 60 and I'm 58. And um, it's really time to do something in the other direction, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that's, and I don't really know all the time how I can do that, but I do know that, like if I'm at a Pebble Palooza or at some other very nice convention like Rocky Mountain Session, uh, and younger guys approach me and they start asking me questions, I'll, if they're sincere and uh, sincere about it and genuinely interested, we're there for the night because there are people who were there for me for the night, right? So we'll sit down all night and talk about things or whatever. I've had some really good conversations with young guys. And they're not, they're not all like that. Not everybody's a good student. Not <laughs> sure. everybody's a good person. I don't mean to say they're evil or bad, but, but you know, different people have different qualities. So there are other people that might come up and ask you questions, and you, you immediately know that eh, well, he, he doesn't come across as being really sincere about this. Mm-hmm. And if I share this information with him, which I would be inclined to do anyway, um, where is that going to go? Is it going to do some good or is it going to do some bad? So you, you, have to be, um, you have to make discretionary judgments. And I'm not always right, but you do the best job you can, you know. So and I try to err on the side of caution. Eh, I'm, uh, we'll, OK, we'll talk about this anyway. We'll see where it goes from here. But um, but you, you know the kind of people I'm talking about. Sure, you meet them every day in life. Right. So um, so that's where kind of we are right now. And then that we um, as much as we can try to help as many people as we can in whatever small ways we can. I, I don't feel I'm really capable of making large grand gestures and helping people. I can't, Oh, you need some help. I'll buy you a house. No problem. You know, that's not going to happen. Right. Yeah. I can't, uh, invest, you know, 10,000 hours in your success, but I can try to, um, offer a word here and there, share ideas. You know, magic is, it's run on ideas. That's all it is, is a collection of ideas. When you watch a magic performance, it's an execution of a whole series of ideas that are all interlinked and interwoven together. It's all ideas. That's where it all starts. So if you, if you, if, if, if somebody is of the inclination to withhold ideas, keep them to himself, um, because they don't, he or they, whoever this person or group might be, doesn't think other people are worthy of having ideas. Uh, I don't fully buy into that. I, you know, I get that we have need for some discretion because not all I, for instance, I may have an idea that wasn't actually mine. It may be somebody else's, right? Mm-hmm. But um, given whether or not how this person that I got it from may feel about it, I may share it with somebody else simply because that's how magic grows. Magic only grows through exchanging ideas. That's all, you know. If you don't exchange ideas, it'll wither. And if you continue to share thoughts and ideas, it will continue to flourish, right? Nobody has created the perfect magic trick in a vacuum. He's always drawn on what's around him, mm-hmm. that the ideas that have come to him, built on those and come out with something different. So, so we try to share wherever we can. Do you have any stories of moments in your life that, you know, Roger or Michael or one of the many other people who had a profound influence on you? Do you, do you have a story that you could share about like something that was incredibly meaningful? With Roger, it was a bunch of tiny little things, just every almost every day, almost every time I ever spent any time with them at all. Um, not grand 
big events or big moments, but that's how life works. It mm-hmm. generally works in tiny baby steps and little things that happen to you that you might not even realize at the time, but later you look back and you kind of go, hey, that was a little significant there, you know? Yeah. Or you might put this detail that you that happened and this thing over here that happened and connect the two and you kind of go, oh, that's what that meant, you know? But Roger was like that with all the time. That's just the kind of person he was. Anybody who hung around him, got to know him, and was aware enough would eventually realize that they were constantly being given those moments. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the old saying that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Well, I've come to understand that that does not mean a teacher will appear. That means that those lessons were always there, flowing around you all the time. And when you're ready, you'll see them, but not until then. So I might be sitting with Roger at one time. I remember I was sitting and uh, Joe Stevens used to do the Greater Magic Video Library mm-hmm. series. He would actually contract with the local TV station in Wichita, K-A-K-E TV studios. So we'd be sitting in the studio between tapings because mm-hmm. we'd go down there and watch them, you know. So these great names in magic would go to Wichita to be recorded by Joe Stevens and his crew. Roger and I were sitting in, in the employee cafeteria slash break room at one point and roger noticed my finger ring on my hand which was a signet ring Mm -hmm. the signet was turned the ring was on my third finger but the signet was leaning towards my second finger and he just reached over and straightened it out so that the signet was facing more outwards right which is a more aesthetic appearance Mm -hmm. so i kind of knew why he did that because yeah that makes sense but i asked him anyway i said what's the difference He's looked at me and said, if you don't know now, you'll never understand. (laughs) You know, but Roger was all about even the tiniest details of aesthetic placement. You know, Um, it didn't sometimes I'd be working through a move or maybe a trick and he would just reach out and adjust my pinky like a sixteenth of an inch. And I'd look at it and I'd go. Holy shit, that does work better, you know, because it's all in the minutest of details that these things um can function better, right? And uh, that was my overall life experience with Roger from beginning to end was just this constant um, stream of tiny thoughts that as you absorbed them over time became big things, yeah. if that makes sense. So, I'd, and I think your question was, can I tell you a story about something significant? It was a bunch of tiny significant things, yeah. right? That accumulated. And even now when I talk to people where I give talks at conventions or whatever, if I do get into a discussion about details, you know, because I, I do, I, I, sometimes I go through this one sequence where I talk about just having a spectator peek at a card, you know, where you open up a deck at the corner, let a spectator peek at a card in the middle of the deck. And there's, you can do it this way, which is the way a lot of guys do it, or you can change the posture of this hand a little bit and do it this way, or you can turn the hand palm toward the audience, which gives a whole different impression of fairness and do it that way. And you add on the detail of turning your head and you add on the detail of letting the deck close and lowering your hand and the deck before you turn your head back. And these are all details you're piling on, but each one you add makes everything look a little more open and a little more fair and a little more above board. So that by the time you've added like your 12th detail, you've got the sequence that looks like you couldn't possibly have control over anything. So the question then becomes, are these details important? Well, if you think about one of the details, no. Any single detail by itself was not all that important. But when you add up the cumulative effect of all of these details, in the end, you have something that looks totally different than what you started with. And that's the way details work. They don't work in isolation. They work in accumulation. 
So if you have a routine that you're working on and you adjust a finger placement here and you change the plate that you change the location of where you put a card on the table there. And maybe when you pick up that card, you approach it from this corner instead of that corner. These are all minor details. But if you add on in the course of a routine, 50 details, and then you do it for somebody, that person may very well say, that looks nothing like the, what you told me that trick was, mm -hmm. you know? And this is why somebody like Michael Skinner could go do a routine for Bill Simon that was Bill Simon's own routine, and Bill Simon would say, what trick is that? I don't recognize it. But it was from his book, Effective Card Magic, you know? But it's just all that layering of details and making minor adjustments, even though it's the exact same thing at its core. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a whole different um, beast when you're done. I was just talking to Ossie Wind, Mm -hmm. And he, he he said that he thinks about magic tricks as if they're still life paintings. Mm -hmm. Everybody does still life paintings. And some of them are fine art and some of them are studies based on the decisions that are made. Mm -hmm. And that resonates with me like what you're saying does in that it's all about the details. And every single thing that you can consider and make slightly better right. will then accumulate. Yes. And no, it's not the right. Yeah, accumulate into uh, something more than the sum of its whole. Exactly. And that's exactly where, you know, the, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. That's where you, we see it in action, in yes. actual experience. Thank you for correcting me. Like I, oh, I always, no, no, no. I <laughs> yeah. literally always get yeah. that. Oh, really? <laughs> that I'm, I'm like, the sum is the whole of the all the parts. What is the part? Her parts were, no, wait, what? <laughs> Her parts were a whole, yeah. I don't know, I can't remember what it is. Yeah. Um, yes. And, mm -hmm. and you know, how, how do you, do you create much material anymore or are you sharing what you've already done? Um, hmm, that's interesting. I have never actually, in my mind, been a creator of material. Mm -hmm. What I tend to do most often, I think, is take something that I have usually read in a book or maybe I've seen somebody do and I'll start playing with it and tinkering with it mm -hmm. and finessing it. What does that adjusting mean? It, adding on all these details. Mm -hmm. I will take what I see maybe and, and only in my mind, cause mm -hmm. I'm trying to make this thing flow as well as it can for me, whatever yes. routine or piece is under question. And, uh, and I can't make a routine that works perfectly for you. Mm -hmm. I can only make a routine that works perfectly for me and, and how it feels to me. So, I will start saying um, things like, mm, this particular part where I take this packet of cards in this way doesn't exactly, it feels okay, I think it could feel better. So I start searching for a way to make it feel better. Or I may think in, to my, in my mind, this particular moment or this effect that's happening within this routine is not happening exactly the right time. Mm -hmm. So how can I get it to happen on the right beat? But that might require changing everything that came up to it. Right. Just to get that thing pushed a quarter mm -hmm. of a beat later. Right. Or I may say to myself, hmm, I need to get a break on three cards at this point. I could do a pinky count, which is the most direct but brutish of methods. Right. Or I could find another way. Or maybe I can find a way to get a break five moments ahead in another way and just hold that break until I get to this point when I actually need it. So you can often... It was like Erdnays once wrote, you know, the resourceful magician failing to improve the method changes the moment. Mm -hmm. And then we're not just talking about when the trick happens, but possibly when moves are done or when certain situations are achieved, right? You want to achieve the situation of getting a break on a triple. 
for some reason it's not working for you at this moment because for one thing some the heat may be on yeah so you try to figure out a way to get it in a more subtle way five or six beats ahead of time so that by the time you get to where you need it you already have it and you've had it for a while right and, and you know Tony Cabral I love this guy to death and we have the funnest arguments we fight all the time and it's all in good faith it's all in good 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 humor and at one point he was talking to me about second deals and I don't believe that second deals are a bad thing but I was taking that position on that day mm-hmm. right and, uh, and we were getting kind of heated going back and forth and he was like well what would you do what, what, what would you do what kind of a second would you use here and I said I would put myself in a position where I wouldn't have to do a second deal right <laughs> that requires thinking ahead mm-hmm. like maybe 15 or 20 seconds before that so that by the time you get there you're just dealing off the top so you know fuck you Cabral <laughs> you know? but uh, we love each other to death we oh do. I know it yeah we don't agree on anything no that's not true but uh, yeah, I recently had an mm-hmm. argument like that yeah. in good fun yeah. about Tenkai Palm. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no one should ever do Tenkai Palm ever. Really? Yeah. Okay. And I, and of course, well, were you taking a devil's advocate position or I, were you, I do don't, you really I don't that? fully disagree with what, the, with what <laughs> I was saying, <laughs> yeah. but of course I use Tenkai and everybody yeah. does at one right, point right, or another right, use yeah. it. But like, mm. I think of it as a transitional palm mm. instead of. Like, I'm holding out in Tenkai for a long time. Yeah, I see what you're saying there. Mm-hmm. And when you think of it in those terms, it may serve best as a transitional technique rather than an absolute one. Mm-hmm. But those rules aren't written in concrete either. Of course Right, not. yeah. But yeah, I get, I get it because uh, just just the, just the how that card is being held doesn't lend itself well to yeah. holding out for an extended period. I'm but, with you. But it was mostly just yeah. the, the fun of the yeah, back and forth. of course. So I get that. Yeah. Um, when you're when you start to tinker, are you doing it while you're reading it, or do you do it? Do you read the trick, learn it, do it that way, and then start to change? It? Oh well, here's the thing. Okay, and this has been a lifelong habit. I don't know. I think I might have just always been this way. So when I read a book, like let's say I'm reading a description of a card trick, and I'm going along through it. Just for some reason, I'm already visualizing how it should look as best as it, as it can possibly. I just assume the ideal. I'm exactly right? the yeah. same way. That's why I asked. Yeah. So I assume the ideal. And then as I start to practice it, I have that visual in my mind and I, I go for it. Mm-hmm. And that happens even if I've seen the originator of that trick do that trick before I read the description. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not locked into how I saw him do it. I'm reading what's in the book and I'm visualizing the ideal version of it. And I try to get there. Did you have many magicians around you when you got into magic? Mm, well, I live in Oklahoma City, so no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I ask because I think that may be a symptom of you're, you're, you're visualizing the perfect appearance, maybe a symptom of not having magicians around you coming up. Um, it could be. Um, but let me let me put this in there too. Even though there weren't a lot of magicians in my area, there were a few. There was a magic club, you know, mm-hmm. and there were a couple of pretty capable sleight of hand guys in the area. There just weren't. It wasn't like Chicago or New York. Sure. But even then, and even though I was, uh, I'm talking in my very early 20s. I've had a lifelong interest in magic from when I was like six or seven years old. But I didn't start studying it on a serious level until I was like 19. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really get heavily involved with studying sleight of hand until I was maybe in my early 20s. So, um, but my very first magic convention I ever went to 
was in St. Joseph, Missouri. So I, we didn't have a, a magic shop in Oklahoma City that um, I was very impressed with. I can't even remember if there was one at the time. So I would drive to Tulsa because there were two in Tulsa. Tulsa is an hour and a half away. Uh-huh. And I would talk to a magician who worked owned one of the shops. His name was Pete Peterson. He was really nice to me. Very nice. But one time I was there and he'd show me tricks and I, he would show me this wonderful trick. And I, he'd say, it's in this book right here. And he pointed to his book, Bob Paul Harris. And I'd point to those books. I say, what are those? And they were the Kabbalahs. He's like, you don't want those. I said, let me take a look. And I'd go home with those instead. But anyway, because I was an idiot. But anyway, um, <laughs> uh, so Pete Peterson one time had flyers on his countertop of a magic. He says, yeah, it's in St. Joseph, Missouri. You have to fly out there, but Di Vernon will be there. And I'm like, hmm. Divern, I don't know who that is. Mm-hmm. I think I've heard the name in a magic book, but I'm not sure. He says, uh, Charlie Miller will be there. Not mm, the same reaction. He says, Fawcett Ross will be there. Mm, okay. But anyway, I don't know why at some point I just said, well, screw it. I'll just go. You yeah. know? So, um, uh, I, I can't remember if I had to schedule time off work or not, but it was a weekend and I just bought the plane ticket and went out there and I went out there with $40 in my pocket. It was a different time back then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't go on a trip these days with only $40 to carry through a weekend. I did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I got there and I'm wandering around and I'm looking and I'd never been in the dealer's room before. And this all has a point leading up to your question. I'd never been in the dealer's room before. And I'm walking around. And even back then, I see all these um, things stored in plastic bags with, like, glitter and foil and <laughs> shiny things. And I'm like, mm, nah, not impressed. And I would go on. And I come to this table and it has nothing on it but decks of playing cards. That's all that was on this table, decks of playing cards. But I hadn't seen these back designs before. I was in, I'd, I had never seen aristocrats. I would never seen tally-hos. I would never seen the fan bags. Mm-hmm. I said, how much are these? He goes, they're $2 a piece. Different time, right? Two dollars yeah. a piece. He, and I say, I look in my pocket. And I say, okay, I'll take however many this can get me, right? So he stacked up all these decks of cards in front of me. I must have bought like twenty five of them, right? Mm-hmm. And I scooped them up in my. I do you have a bag? No, I don't have any bags. I'll just take them up to my room. I'll come back down. He says, okay. So I scoop them up in my arms like that, like I'm cradling a baby now because they're stacked up on against my chest. And I'm walking out with these decks of cards stacked against my chest, cradling them in my arms. And I walk by this group of people and one of them taps me on the shoulder. I didn't know who he was. I realized later it was John Carney. <laughs> so he taps me on the shoulder and he says, hey, hey. And I said, yeah. And he goes, can you show me a card trick? <laughs> I thought it was funny. I was cute. So I kept walking. I got in the elevator. Peripherally, I saw this little man standing next to John and some other people I knew later were Peter Studebaker, some of the other guys that were in that close-up crowd mm-hmm. in the Midwest. So, and, the, and, the, and the, the gentleman I saw peripherally that I didn't know at the time was Roger Klaus. And I guess he saw something different about this young man. I had black hair back then. Um, who was clearly broke <laughs> because you could tell by the way he dressed, spending all this money, probably the last dollar he had on all these decks of cards. So I took him up to my room, dumped him on the bed, came right back down and I'm meandering through the dealer's room looking there. Nothing else interested me yeah. except those cards. And Roger comes up to me. He says, uh, hi, I'm Roger Klaus. And in my mind, I'm like, who? You know, <laughs> Lance Pierce, nice to meet you. And he introduced himself to me and he stood there and talked to me for about five minutes. He says, are you interested in magic? Close up. That's good. Close up is a very good branch of magic to be in. It, uh, it relies on skill and sleight of hand, which is one of the most difficult things you can probably try to do. But once you have it, you'll have it for life. And if somebody were to walk up to you naked in the shower and ask you to do a trick, you can do it because you have your skill. And I'm like, that'll never happen. <laughs> 
<laughs> but he was very nice to me. And then later that night. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so later that night, <laughs> there was one of the shows happening. And I sit down next to this guy that I've been kind of talking to. At the, I didn't know anybody. So this guy I was talking to, I'd only met him earlier that day. Mm-hmm. And this guy um, elbows me and he points to a man walking down the side to the front row. He says, and he kind of whispers reverentially, you know, that's Roger Klaus. And I said, oh, I was talking to him earlier. And he goes, you were talking to Roger Klaus? And I'm like, what the hell's wrong with this kid? Yeah, I was talking. He's like some lion or something. I don't get it. Yeah. The whole point of this thing is I didn't know who Roger was then. About a year later, a friend of mine says, I'm going to go visit a guy in Texas. His name is Roger Klaus. You want to come? And I said, I know him. And this guy goes, you know Roger Klaus? I'm like, what the hell is going on with like, this Roger Klaus cat, you know? So we went up to Roger Klaus, Roger's place. Yeah, we went to his house. We visited his home, but we stayed in the hotel. And uh, Roger was very nice to me. He didn't remember me immediately at first because like a year later. But sure. but then he remembered as we got to talking. And um, uh, he was just, he shared. He was sick that weekend. He had an ear infection, but he still stayed up and shared and put things on video for us. And wow. my friend, everything he asked Roger to do, Roger did, even though he didn't feel well. And uh, he was very, very giving. And from that point forward, we kind of became friends and kept in contact. The friendship only grew. But I guess the whole point of my telling that long, involved, boring tale is by the time I, I became more involved in the local magic scene in Oklahoma City, I just assumed everybody knew someone like Roger Klaus. Mm-hmm. I, just, I did not know that my experience was unique. And as through Roger, I was meeting people like Michael Skinner. I met Chuck Smith. I met all the magicians in Texas and the Panhandle and throughout the Midwest, the really great ones, you know, and uh, met the guys from Vegas and talked to people on the phone. I just, for some reason, had this idiotic, naive assumption that everybody's story and magic was just like mine. And I didn't know how good I had it. Yeah. You know, so, um, I, you know, your question was toward, um, you know, if I had people in Oklahoma City that I could... Uh, how did you phrase it uh, that I could uh, interact with? And yeah, I just yeah. I just asked if there were magicians when you were getting well. Into yeah, that. but there's a little bit more than that because um, because I was I didn't know how lucky I had it. So so while I was interacting with magicians elsewhere and doing stuff for them, I couldn't figure out why it was blowing their minds. I didn't know that they didn't have access to. And I'm not saying these secrets because nothing I was doing at that time that I recall was secretive or had to be held back. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was just. I think it was like even when I, when I was doing an Elmsley count, it didn't look like theirs, mm-hmm. you know. And it was because I was I was spending so much time with guys like Roger that I was visualizing things differently than other people were mm-hmm. when I was reading magic books and stuff because I'd already seen people doing things those ways. Yeah. You were soaking up lessons that other people that I didn't even realize to. I was soaking up. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I feel idiotic now for being that naive back then. And, you know, I've talked to Bill about this. He tells me he was even a little bit like that. He didn't know everybody didn't, didn't know Marlo when yeah. he was going to the round table every weekend. And we didn't fully appreciate how blessed we were, you know. And now that Roger's gone, it kind of like hurts every time. You know, I, just, I should have had a better grasp of what was going on. But I was young, right? But I know that when I meet younger people at conventions these days, because like I said, I'm pretty old now. Yeah. Getting up there. um, I can kind of see it in their eyes too. They don't fully, they, they know a lot of what's going on, mm-hmm. but they're not, it won't hit them till later. What yep. it kind of meant. Right. 
I try I try to think about my friends that way that are mm-hmm. we we all kind of are the same age and mm-hmm. some of us have had, you know, little ripples of impact in the magic community. Yeah. And I think about the people that I look up to, like yourself and many of the folks that are here. Mm-hmm. And I go, Fuck, I'm so lucky to be here <laughs> yeah. in this hotel yeah. doing shots with and telling awful inhumane jokes with and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just lucky to be that and then i think about myself and my friends and then also being in that position later on and being like we are going to be the guys one day yeah and that's yeah it's a heavy responsibility you better live up to it i won't yeah. <laughs> but my friends certainly will yeah. <laughs> lay the groundwork now <laughs> but i that's i mean that's one of the many things i appreciate you about you is that you know you are really giving back in a in like it feels effortless. Like being around you, you yeah. is just immediately comforting. Oh, well, it's I nice like, of you to say that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I feel like anyone, anyone would be very comfortable. Mm. And I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of that because some people, and there are some people that are here, kind mm. of walk around and they look at Bill and yourself mm. and you know Tyler, who's a giant. Yeah, yeah. He's Dennis, who's also a giant, right. and <laughs> Howard, and they're like those are the guys that I own their books and I know their material. Yeah, yeah. And so if I'm in the vicinity and kind of talking to them, I see them like, oh, come over, join the yeah. conversation, be a part of this, like mm. get into it because they're just people too. Right. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. and, and part of that is because you have fostered such a wonderful atmosphere and where there is no pretension, you know, you, you maybe couldn't do that at a bigger convention where it's kind of a little more clicky and guys yeah. are hanging out with each other because that's where they want to be. Yeah. You know, the bigger conventions, they have their place. I, I don't really feel comfortable at very many of them, if any of them. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's guarded. Yep. You know, um, especially the, the I guess, the celebrities who are there, the, the people who are known. Mm-hmm. They have to be guarded because so many people are coming up to them every possible minute and they don't know always how to handle things within the first few seconds when somebody just approaches them out of the blue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't envy them that kind of um, lifestyle, I guess. You know, I'm glad I'm not that famous or <laughs> I'm not there. I like to think of, you know, the people that we hang out with in our little group as, you know, they're just all friends. Yeah. You know, and if you've got another friend you want to invite, bring them in. You know, uh, I trust you. Mm-hmm. Right. And, that, and that's how we flourish and keep going with with our new blood uh, is just by bringing in people that we like. Right. So. But, yeah, the big conventions I went to, you know, we both have a friend, Zach Heath. He's a he's an awesomely cool guy. He and I drove down to Dallas one time to to go to the IBM SAM. And this is not a criticism, people of IBM or SAM. You guys are great. But. I want to say that this was a joint convention between the two organizations, a national convention. Mm-hmm. We arrived at the hotel. He and I walked in. We literally walked around the hotel for 30 minutes trying to find the magic convention. The place was huge. It was just huge. And then once we found it, there were too many people, too much going on. You know, I just want to meet my friends and sit down with them for a while. Yeah. Magic Live is a great event. It's wonderful. I went there a couple of years ago. I was texting with people I knew were there. We were trying to hook up, and we never saw each other the whole four <laughs> days I was there. 
They were always tied up in one event. I, I was, was one of those people. Room. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> I saw you for five minutes. You said, hey, you want to sit down to a podcast? I said, sure. And I never fucking saw you again oh, the whole weekend. It's it was so, nuts. It's so ridiculous. You know, I mean, I mean, I love the conventions. I'm glad that it's being done. Mm-hmm. But that resort, that hotel complex takes up a whole city block, you know, and you may see somebody. I saw a couple of guys I know, like they were way down the row and I never saw them again the whole time. Never saw. I never got to sit with them. You know, I'm lucky I got to see the people I did. Yeah. The reason I go to a convention, there was a long period of time. I would never go to a convention if Roger or Bill weren't there or both. That was the only thing that made it worth my while, you know, was sitting with the people I loved the most mm-hmm. because that's why I went sitting with Bob White, sitting with tiny, you know, Jordan, Tiny's uh, Jordan. Awesome. he's, yeah. he's awesome. And, uh, you know, otherwise, you know, the cost of the plane fare, the cost of hotel rooms, the only thing that can make it worth it for me is being able to see my friends. Mm-hmm. That's it. So that's why I did it. And then I thought, well, I guess I'm going to throw my own gigs because <laughs> <laughs> nobody's doing it. Then anymore. I can see all my friends, right? <laughs> I don't have to get lost in Magic Live trying to track people down. They're here. So I bring them to me. So it's, it's worked out for me as well, is what I'm trying to say. It's, I hope it's a mutually beneficial thing for everybody. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. What is... I don't like the way this whole thing is going. Can we start over? Yeah, sure. No, I'm oh, I'm not even recording. <laughs> <laughs> um, what What is your experience of magic? Like, what is... What, what is the experience that you want to give people when you perform for them? So many different things. Um, and it kind of depends on the context. Mm-hmm. Some of them, you know, as you and I have both done, we have both done paid performances. And those paid performances in themselves can be very varied to where some of them are like intimate close-up for a very small group. Some of them may be platforms. Some of them may be walk around for a larger group. Some of them may be more like stage events. Um, I've done all of those types of things. And, you know, the messages that you want to give people as you're doing magic may change depending on that. And then there's also the non-paid type situations where you're just sitting around maybe in a bar with friends or or maybe you're at a family reunion. Somebody says, can you show somebody something? And you either say yes or no. Right. <laughs> but um, Sharon, yeah. leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> this is my day off. Right. I just want to get day drunk with my cousins. There you go. Bring me a <laughs> Moscow mule. <laughs> but um, yeah. So um, but generally speaking, mm-hmm. there are a few goals I would like to achieve. Um and this, even when I was working like down in Florida at uh, the bars, mm-hmm. which I very much enjoyed, um, I I wanted to, not only to convey the message that, you know, we are going to have fun here, whether you want to or not, <laughs> <laughs> but I also wanted to, when I walked away in some fashion, having changed how they thought about magic. In other words, my experience has been that most people who have not seen a competent close-up magician previously don't really know what that experience is like Mm -hmm. and they generally have a preconceived notion of what that must be like and rarely is it good okay yes rarely is that a good preconceived notion and if you want to test that then you can go into a restaurant or a bar and you can approach every table or person you walk up to with a question would you like to see some magic and you can count up the number of no's you get versus the number of yeses and if it's if it's 50 50 you already know you're up against a problem right and uh, chances are it's at least that much, mm-hmm. if not more. Yeah. But but my, my take on that has always been when people do say no, they don't really know what they're saying no to. So why have them answer to an idea that may or may not be a valid one? 
because it only exists in their head is not what you're all about anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. And I've talked to people like in the bars where I worked and one guy, a, a guest who came in, he told me, he said, flat out, he says, we love coming here. You're great. All the magicians who work here are great. When we have people coming in from out of town, we love to bring them here. We say, we want to take you to a magic bar. And the first thing we always hear is, eh, can we go like to a show or to the theater or something? And no, we're taking, and it's a struggle to get them into the bar. But once they get them into the bar, every time those people come back into town, it's always, can we go back to the magic bar? Mm-hmm. They have to see it to understand it. This is a lay person explaining this to me that I already knew that people have this idea in their heads that it's not right. So, and that's why a lot of times when I would walk up, I would never ask them if they wanted to see magic. I'd work out a way to where I was into the magic before they realized that we were doing a magic trick. Oh, cool. And by that time, they're locked in. And once you get to the end of that magic trick, it's usually an easy deal after that because now they've seen it and they're surprised at how good it was and they get it. Instantly they get it. Okay. So, so you know, there's ways that um, uh, we can fight these preconceived notions that kind of affect how, what messages we want to give to people because you, you were saying, what do I want people to take away from magic? Mm-hmm. I think that was essentially the kind of question. So there are different messages we can give. And one of mine was always, I want you to appreciate magic differently than you thought you would. And yeah. that's one way to do that is getting past those preconceived notions. But another message I always wanted to deliver in some fashion, not explicitly, but just that they have this takeaway in some way, is that magic is, is uh, even though it's light and it can be funny and jovial and very entertaining, it is actually a more serious thing with a deeper history than you knew. So sometimes... In order to accomplish that, I would actually do a trick that talked about Vernon Mm -hmm. or Charlie Miller and the kind of people they were as I was doing this trick. So that by the time that this was done, they understood that these were actual live people with really rich stories. They didn't hear all of them. They just heard maybe one, Mm -hmm. but it was enough, you know. For years, whenever I did platform or small stage, I would always close with the linking rings. And I'd always do it with um, poetic patter, like Jack Miller's linking rings. But I'd do Vernon's Symphony of the Rings, so I had to change the pattern of Jack Miller's routine to fit the movements of Vernon's routine. And uh, But the whole lead-up to the rings was talking about Vernon and how he was born in 1894, lived a whole lifetime of magic. His lifespan covered five generations of magicians. And you just talk about all this about how he influenced people all over the world. And, and by the time the story ends, you've already done the false count with the rings, the initial false count. So people don't think of it as you're trying to prove the rings are separate. It's, it was just something you're doing while you're telling the story about Vernon. Mm-hmm. And then when you enter the more formal stage of actually starting the routine itself, you can see people sit up in their chairs a little bit because they're they're interested in seeing what this routine of Vernon's looked like when mm-hmm. Vernon did it. Now, granted, I can't do anything like what Vernon looked like when he did it. That was Vernon. I'm just me. But what was important was what was happening in their minds. And by the time you're done with the routine, I really think they were taken away that this shit goes deep. You yeah. Know? And it goes way back because it didn't start with, because I would talk about how, yeah, Vernon was born in 1894, but this trick is 5,000 years old. And up until Vernon, it looked like 20, 30 rings. Vernon only used six, you know. Back then, they're using sets of rings, some of which had small secret openings, others of which were permanently linked together. Vernon only used six separate solid steel rings. That's when I'm doing the false count, mm-hmm. right? And then once you're past that, they've, they've already got this, this sense of history behind it because of what you're telling about how old these rings were and what they meant to magicians all the way up to Vernon, right? So that's just one way you can do it. But yes, I always did want people to come away thinking that magic was um, uh, 
more important than what they knew. Mm-hmm. That it's not just necessarily. It can be just a hobby, which is great, but it's not necessarily just that. Sure. Yeah. I just had the incredible privilege mm-hmm. of uh, working at a bar in Michigan for a month. I was behind the bar making cocktails yeah. and doing magic for patrons of the bar. Small little speakeasy seats, 18 people. Uh, and in this town, there are no magicians. David, who lives there, is yeah. the only magician. David Yannick? David Yannick He's is the guy. only magician. Yeah. And so people would come into the bar mm-hmm. and we'd be working together, slinging drinks. And, you know, he and I constantly talking uh, quotes from TV shows and we joke about magic. And if the bar is slow, we'll get out our cards and shuffle and, right. you know, mess with each other. Yeah. And people would never see magic go, oh, what are you guys doing? Oh, yeah. we're magicians. What? Yeah. Could you show? Yes, of course. And to be over the course of a month, I was so many people's first experience of magic. Yeah. And that is tremendous fun, first of all. And secondly, an enormous responsibility that I'm honored that I got to do that. But that says something, doesn't it? That you were so many people's first experience of good, competent, close-up magic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like, as you mentioned earlier about people's preconceived notions about what magic is. It's not easy to find magic live. Yeah. It kind of you it, magic happens to you. You you don't seek it out really. Right. Usually, yeah. Generally, yeah. And so, like more, I think, and I've said this on the show before, but I think more people need to be cognizant of the fact that, like, you're doing. First of all, you're doing something that is seemingly impossible. You are mm-hmm. doing things that are apparently impossible. Right. That's an enormous responsibility. But then also to be the first person that shows someone something impossible mm. in person is an enormous responsibility. Yeah. And also that seems kind of heavy, but you could also think of it as just like a really fucking cool opportunity. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you can do what you want with it. Yeah. Um, some guys like to um, take that and say, well, how can I get the actual most that anybody could possibly get out of this and turn this into a real, uh, what could possibly be a life-changing experience for somebody, mm-hmm. which is a pretty high-minded and difficult task to achieve. But I do concur that it can be done. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it can be done 100% of the time. Sure. Not even 90 or 80. I don't know what the percentages are. I don't think they'd be very as high as they would hope. Mm-hmm. But it can be done to where you can actually hit somebody so hard with a trick that it would change the way they think about some things, you know. Um, or you can take that sense of responsibility and do something else with it, right? Uh, and it's, 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 it's our call, each of, each of us individually. Um, no right or wrong answers. No path is really any that much better than the other except for ourselves. You know? It's all we can do is try to live the best life we can anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, but I'm glad, you know, that you're having that experience and seeing some of that too because... It really, when you when you practice magic, you know, we can do magic for all kinds of reasons, like I just said. And any reason is just as valid as any other. Even if you just sit in front of a mirror, mm-hmm. that's fine. That's perfectly fine. Um, I spent thousands of hours myself just sitting in front of a mirror on, working on something I knew I would never do for anybody. But you do it just because you love the kinesthetic activity of it or mm-hmm. whatever. There's something about the idea of it that fascinates you, whatever. Um, and that's fine. And it's also good if you want to just only do magic for friends and family. 
It's great if you only want to do magic part-time or only at the magic club, or if you do want to do it professionally and make a, try to make a living out of it, which is tough because then you not only have to learn magic, you have to learn how to be a businessman, which mm-hmm. is a whole different as- way of thinking, you know, and there are compromises to be made. Mm-hmm. But um, all these different considerations and all these different avenues that somebody can take are all valid and they're all great. And like I said, you can sit in front of a mirror if that's all you want to do. But we always have to be able to acknowledge in any event that regardless of what path we choose, magic always reaches its fullest expression when it's done before life, people. Um, That's when it really is rich and that's where it lives the best, Mm -hmm. right? So um, if you want, if you or anybody, any magician wants to step in front of live people and perform, I think that's where you'll find it the most rewarding. And you've seen that. You've seen that in your own experience. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think it's great. I think it's amazing. I, when I, Danny mentioned it yesterday when he talked about. Let I, me just jump in here and say Danny is a great guy. Yeah. Uh, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Danny Garcia, folks. That's who we're talking about. Yes, Danny yeah. Garcia. Thank you, Lance. <laughs> Danny Garcia mentioned yesterday that, you know, when people find out that we're magicians, mm-hmm. that that can be, you know, a really powerful moment. Oh, yeah, I'd love to show you something. Um, and I went through a phase where I was around people who were very cynical about magic. And who had been beaten down by it because it was their profession. And that rubbed off onto me mm-hmm. because I was spending a lot of time with these people. And so I was in this place where, ugh, I don't want to do that. You know, I would literally have cards out be, and just be doing stuff for myself at a restaurant or at the mall or wherever I was. Oh, are you a magician? Could you show me something? I'd be like, ah, oh, no, I'm not really. And, and I look at myself then and, and think, what was that? What were you trying to be cool? What was this thing that you were, you had inside of you that was like, ah, no, I'm just doing this for me. And I guess there's been like some self-awareness awakening realization in that, like, no, I'm walking around with superpowers and somebody gets a glimpse of it and they go, whoa, can you do that again? And I'm just like, no, fuck off. Like, it's so selfish. Yeah. But it, it was because I was around people that were yeah. like, I don't, like, this doesn't bring me any joy. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm glad to be out of that now. And it's it comes with a self-awareness of this isn't about me anymore. And, you know, and I think that's probably a path that a lot of people take in their magical career is that, like, at some point... I'm not just interested in learning more tricks and, that, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. And some people that's all they want and that's totally valid. Um, but at some point it's like, for me anyway, it was, uh, I'm not interested in learning every trick in this book. I want to get the book cause I respect the person and I want to think about, I want to look at how they think about things and maybe I'll pluck bits and pieces and, sure. and incorporate this. But, just sitting down and reading a magic book cover to cover, learning all the tricks is no longer interesting to me. Mm-hmm. What is interesting now is carrying around something that I can share with people. And it's not about me anymore. It's about what is it that, yeah. how can I contribute to these people around me in a way that they aren't often contributed to? Mm-hmm. It makes sense. I, you know, I've always thought about, not always, but for a long time now, um, 
uh, let me preface it this way. So magicians um, oftentimes segment things in their mind. So they talk about method of a trick. Mm -hmm. They talk about the patter of a trick, mm -hmm. the presentation or the theme of a trick. And they, and they treat these things as separate things to a great extent. And I don't find that they're as separate as we, th as we think they are. Method, presentation, patter. But I guess to, to the point here is that a lot of magicians regard patter simply because we call it patter mm -hmm. to a large extent. Um, we, they treat patter as just scripted words to be said, mm -hmm. right, to support the trick. And when I really started doing magic full time, over a period of time, it began to dawn on me that it wasn't the patter or what you were saying which essentially is supposed to be conversation when you're doing close-up magic. Yeah. Whatever you say to people, we, we've been calling patter, but it's really supposed to be conversation, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because you're talking to people. There's no fourth wall when you're sitting at a four top with, you know, people sitting there yeah. w w six inches away from you. So um, the conversation is not there to support the trick. This mm -hmm. is a realization I came to. The trick is there to support the conversation. Yeah, say it again, Lance. Interacting. Well, yeah, but that, <laughs> it took me a while to get there, but it's like I'm supposed to be interacting with these people on a human level. They expect it not because they're entitled to it. The audience expects it because that's what people do when they walk up to each other and start talking to each other. If you don't have that element in there, then it really is just patter where you just delivering words into the air in their general direction. <laughs> and nobody likes receiving that kind of, you know, emptiness, right, coming at them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, the conversation is the paramount thing in that interaction between you and that particular audience in a close-up situation. Now, as you get larger scale, like a banquet table mm -hmm. to a platform piece, all the way up to a stage piece, it begins to fade a little bit, but it's still there. The conversation is still the most important thing. It's just it's just not the same when you're on stage because mm -hmm. it's not as two way between your audience and you. When you're standing, you know, right there at the table, you get especially if a really good audience, you get feedback going both ways. Yeah. You say something, they say something. You say something back, they say. That's how conversations work, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a constant back and forth and exchange, okay? And and a lot of magicians just they just want to give their patter. And you know, you people sit there and shut up. You're not part of this. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm. I've got a script going here, and you can tell that's happening sometimes when they're when they're going through the lines and they're saying their script, and the audience member will say something or they'll ask a question, and not fitting into the script, the magician just keeps talking past it as yeah. if they're not part of that process. So. Yeah, the, the trick is there to support the conversation. It's the, the magic that we do is supposed to facilitate the interaction, not the other way around, because the trick is not the mo most important thing. It's how those people feel about you and how the interaction goes. And uh, it took a while for me as a younger man to understand that, you know, like you pointed out, the magic is not all about me anymore. And, and now I'm kind of at the point where it's not about you, the audience, either. It's about us. Mm -hmm. This dynamic between us, that's what's important. It's a mutual thing, and neither one of us can be ignored. We're in this together, folks. When I walk up to the table, I'm going to pull out a deck card. I mean, we're going to hold hands and link arms and get through this kumbaya together, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so, and, it, you know, and I feel much better about it. I think uh, things have gone much better when I do do tricks for people. Mm -hmm. uh, the reactions seem to actually go way up. 
because they feel it. They feel that um, relationship to you. And I, I know I'm talking in Zig Ziglar terms, you know, <laughs> Dale Carnegie type language, but, but it, there's a truth to it. Yeah. You know, there really is a truth to it. And uh, I, I, I've given uh, talks at conventions and stuff and I brought this up and I can't tell. It's always hard to tell if, how people are receiving when you say something like this. I'm, I'm saying, let's flip that script and, you know, make the, make the conversation more important than the trick. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes it's the expressions on people's faces like, okay, well, what time is this over? They're looking at their watch. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to tell what impact you're having, but I still, I still hold to it. I, I don't let, uh, I don't let go of it. It's. I, I think that's the truth. I think it's important. It's, at least it's the truth for me. Yeah. It's been working for me. Other people may have different experiences, which sure. is fine. I agree which with is you, fine. though. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> and I was, uh, I was watching a few tricks last night. Everybody had, you know, had some fun. And we mm-hmm. were up real late. And there were some things that I noticed. And one of which is, like, when people shuffle back and forth during a trick, it's because... I had this realization last night. It's because when they're practicing it, they stop in the middle and shuffle trying to think about what they're supposed to do. Yeah, I've seen that. And so they, now they've practiced this weird shuffle right. during a trick. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing, and this goes back to what you're saying about the conversation being the most important part. Yeah. I saw a trick last night that was fucking awesome and it fooled me, mm-hmm. except there was a really, really bad moment in the center that I stopped in the middle of the trick. I was like, no, 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 this part is awful. Hmm. And it's because the person doing it for me was doing it as they had practiced it. Ah. And they, we were, it was just like, I'm going to show you a trick I've been working on. Right. And the method fooled me and was visually stunning. But then like the actual thing that I want out of magic was lacking. because, yeah. and, and that just is what it is when you're building a new thing yeah. and trying to figure out what it is. Yeah. But I think when you're constructing a routine or a trick or whatever it may be as long as you're cognizant of first who you are when you're performing and how you interact with people in the world and also when you're not performing right um when you're cognizant of that during a construction of something then incorporate those moments even if they're fabricated into the cadence of the routine Mm -hmm. because at this point, there was a cleanup moment, and it happens right in front of you. And he just did the thing to clean up instead of like breaking right, and talking right. to me and being like, "Isn't that cool?" Yeah. And then cleaning up when I'm not paying attention. We're talking about how cool the trick is, yeah. and then finishing the routine. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, it, it's just being aware of of like what it really means to perform magic for somebody, even while you're constructing and practicing. Yeah, uh, that makes perfect sense. But that's okay. I mean, it, it, I don't know what the situation was, but it, this may have been a trick that he had practiced or rehearsed, not necessarily to bring into the real world for real people. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's something he was just bringing into a convention. You know? Sure. There's all kinds of uh, – any approach is a good approach. Totally. All themes are valid as long as you're not hurting anybody. And there's no, so, I agree. Yeah. And there's no judgment on that. Yeah. I just – for me, the lesson that I took away from it was, oh, it was, it was visual yeah. representation of things that I hadn't – put into words yet but we're floating around in my head right and so this is my medium to put that into words <laughs> so good. you know it, it just for me i saw that and i was one of my best friends i love this guy yeah um but i just watching it i was like oh yeah this is important for me in the future when i'm working on something i really need to think about every moment and it gets yes. back to those cumulative details it's yes. like what is every moment in this thing yeah and 
you know, it's also important just to get flight time so that you can simulate what those interactions are yeah, going to be like. Yeah, that's true because I don't care how well you practice any trick, when you take it out in the real world, it's not going to be good. No, let me rephrase. It's not going to be the way you want it. Yeah. Okay. It could be good because some tricks are just, they're just good. They're just, it's in their, it's in their nature. They're going to work. But I don't care how well you practice any trick. When you take it out in front of people, it's going to be different than what you thought it would be because you were in front of a mirror or your video camera or your iPad's front facing camera, whatever you were, whatever tool you were using. <laughs> and you didn't, you don't have the timing of being in front of real people. You don't have their instantaneous feedback. You don't have the looks on their faces. You don't, you can never build in the amount of time you need to allow for them to react however they're going to react. Mm -hmm. But once you take it out in the real world and then you start getting that sense and that's when you've moved into the next phase of perfecting that routine because you can get looking as good as you want in a mirror, but it's not finished yet and it won't be finished until you get out into front of the real world. And to be honest, no routine is ever actually finished. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't have ever used that word. But no routine is ever truly finished because especially if you're like a, you've done magic professionally mm -hmm. to some extent, right? So you may have the same experience that I've had where you're doing a routine and all of a sudden you'll think that one moment could be a little stronger. Or you may think um, there's a problem here. I can't put my finger on it, but there's something not quite right going on mm -hmm. at the end of this or whatever it might be. Um, so then you start thinking about it and working on it and also you come up with a solution and now this trick is a lot better for you. It's still not finished because I guarantee if you do this trick for another year, you'll change it again and again and again. And tricks that we do evolve with us over time. Mm -hmm. They're never done. Hopefully they're never done because if they're done, we're done. That's the only way a trick can ever be done is if we're finished. Yeah. You know, if we finish improving, involving ourselves, then, then everything we do will be the same way. But as long as we're still functionally growing, sustaining human beings, then all of our tricks, everything we do will be the same way as well. Right. Yeah. So um, they require constant attention, constant work, thinking. I've had routines I've done for 20, literally 25 years. Oil and water is a favorite plot of mine. I, uh, I know it's not a good trick. I know it's not a good look, plot. I, look, this is a safe space, Lance. Yeah, no. I'm not attacking you. <laughs> no, I just, this is just a general, I, I'm well aware how magicians in general think about things like oil and water. <laughs> and I get that it's not the most commercial thing in the world, okay? But I was in the, in the 1980s, David Solomon and Simon Erickson came out with a book called Sessions. So I bought it. And uh, David Solomon's oil and water routine was in there. And I go through the handling and I think to myself, He's using this ninth card. It's an extra card. And I'm amazed from a method point of view how far this ninth card gets you. Because by the time you mix the cards, because of that one extra card, they're already unmixed. Mm -hmm. Just that one extra card. And I was, uh, it really impressed me the, how much um, you could get in return for the weight of carrying that card. So I started playing with the routine. And as we talked about earlier... I changed, I changed, I tinkered, I finessed. And by the time I was done, I had something that looked really different than what David had. I had, I had identified different things I wanted to work on and, and, and uh, transform. And I did all that. And I came up with a routine that I did. And I did basically that handling for 25 years, right? 
a long time. I would tweak things now and then. What if I did this here? Now I can separate the packets at this particular point. So they're mixed over here and mixed over here and they still don't mix. So I changed things and improve it. And now about a year and a half ago, I play with an eight card method. And I think it's so much better than what I had. So much better. I showed it to you. We talked about it last year. Yeah. And I'm like, why did I ever use a ninth card? <laughs> yeah. Because at the time it was the best way to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's still, it's still a good approach. But I like this so much better now. It's so much cleaner. And it's all, it's all, um, there are very few slights in it. Just a few, just to, I think hopefully at the right moments. But most of it is just impressions of the cards being mixed. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and even though um, I would not take oil and water out on the road, <laughs> hey, the oil and water concert, you know, uh, nothing like that. Uh, but the small achievements like that in my own personal explorations of magic please me very much. Mm -hmm. So, so after you know so many years since the mid nineteen eighties, which is now we're talking thirty three years later, right? Um, I've got this, 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 which this piece, which has changed yet again. Mm -hmm. The most recent transformation being a very drastic one in method. To where it really doesn't look like the old one did. I mean, to a layperson, it's just colors mixing and unmixing. <laughs> but to us, they don't look the same. The handling's different. They feel different. Yeah. They, they have a different tone to them. And, uh, you know, th this one, because you're handling that extra card, you're having to, to hold doubles at some point. And mm -hmm. you're always, so you're always framing cards up to keep them aligned. Whereas this new one is all fingertip, right? So everything's held by the corners mm -hmm. at the fingertips. Uh, it just feels so much better to me. And uh, that is the evolution and transformation. Even though you've done a routine for, you know, a quarter or a half of your lifetime, you're always open to changing it. You're always open to going on to the next best thing. Mm -hmm. I did sponge balls for 20 years. And then one day I realized it's not working as well as I wanted to. So I rethought the whole thing from beginning to end, came up with something much better. And even in the three years after that, I still tweaked it many times. You can't fall so in love with your routines that you can't change them. Mm-hmm. You, you're open to always adjusting, finessing, tweaking, you know, and you get there in baby steps. The oil and water, the last iteration was a, was the most drastic change, but most changes are very tiny baby steps. Mm -hmm. If you showed it to another magician, he'd go, what's so different about that? You know, because yeah. he wouldn't, might not appreciate the fact that you move that finger a 16th of an inch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Big deal. But to you, it feels a lot different. Yeah. But that 16th of an inch, again, this is the accumulation of details. That sixteenth of an inch combined with the next detail, combined with the next detail, combined with the next one, which is why you keep um, finessing all the time, all your life, all the way to the end of your days. I have a routine that I've been doing for about five years mm -hmm. that I literally got on the pebble mm -hmm. to look at what was happening this weekend. <laughs> and I saw one of the forums and I was like, that's an interesting title. And I clicked on it and I looked at it and I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Whatever. I got to change the thing in the routine. Really? You I was, doing, I was using I was using tilt as a control. Uh huh. And I read through it and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna do this at the bar tonight, okay. and I'm gonna change this to a different thing. Mm -hmm. And immediately, it just felt better. There it just felt go. more clean. And I was like, God damn it! And I <laughs> with that particular routine, it's a three phrase ambitious card. Okay. That's all it is. The structure of it, I think, is perfect. I think it's as clean and as good as you can get right. because it's like a joke. Set up, confirmation is not the right word, but set up and then you prove the point that you set up and then you flip it on its head at the end. Okay. Boom, boom, boom. But then 
there there are several moments throughout me doing this trick where it was this structure mm -hmm. and going oh this part i need to change this part i need to change and it's just method stuff yeah but the overall experience of the trick mm -hmm. has been simplified and pared down and has incorporated the moments where i'm not in the trick yeah. right i'm talking to the people and letting them react and i'm doing stuff in that moment mm -hmm. instead of and it just this it, so yes i've been doing this trick for five years and even as recently as last week i've changed something yeah. in it and so huh. i'm excited to see what it looks like in yeah. 20 years you know and that's what keeps your routines fresh for you is, mm -hmm. is you, that you're doing this kind of work on them and like you just said you're excited to take it out and see how it works mm -hmm. it may not but if it does you get a lift from it you know it feels good mm -hmm. inside you're like ooh, i'm excited to think about this thing again it's a whole new routine now even though you only change one little thing mm -hmm. yeah i love that feeling yeah it's really exciting to yeah. work out a new a new little thing right um what how are we on time we're good i mean we uh we have plenty of time um because okay. nothing happens until eight o'clock tonight okay cool so we have until eight good yeah um, you know we we <laughs> uh, we try to uh we do crowd the schedule a little bit sometimes but we do try to keep as much open as possible so there are these there are these stretches of time at pebble blues where people all they do is hang mm -hmm. yeah it's a it's the best part about it i love it it's yeah. amazing um what was, what was your, do you have any brothers or sisters? No, I'm an only child. Me too. Are you? Yeah. Right. We're so similar, Lance. Yeah, brothers in loneliness. Oh. <laughs> 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 um, so you're an only child. Yes, I am. How did you, how did you get into magic? What was your first experience? There was nothing that got me into magic. I, as long as I can remember, I've always been interested in it. Oh, but we're the same person. Are we now? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I remember even from a really early age, and I'm talking single digits, uh -huh. um, trying to learn card tricks from books and stuff. And I don't know why I, I was that way. I just always had it's just a natural draw to it. But not just magic tricks, puzzles. I absolutely loved puzzles of any kind and i had i you know every time we went to a toy store or we're out in some place where there's a souvenir shop or trinkets being sold i would always go for the puzzles my dad would always buy me one just to shut me up you know <laughs> and even if the puzzle didn't have to be it didn't have to even be a good puzzle but i would literally sit there for hours until i got it solved right that's just i don't know why were you into the rubik's cube did you ever that well the, the time i'm talking about at the moment predates the rubik's cube by about 15 years yes okay um but yes i played with the ruby's cube when it came out just just as a puzzle not as a magic prop but yeah um and and not just magic and puzzles but mathematical recreation was also a huge thing for me so when i was younger my dad was in the air force so i lived on bases as a military dependent i lived on military bases and uh you know there's not a whole lot to do uh, a lot of times but go to the library, which was one of my favorite things as a only child doing my solitary thing. Yeah. Um, so I would go to the library and I would look, go to a uh, 793.7 where all the books on magic were and uh, the puzzles were next to them a little bit over and the party uh, the books on parties and party stunts, yeah. which were also interesting to me. And then uh, in a different part of the library, were all the books that Martin Gardner had written. Oh, wow. I was and, just going to ask. Yeah, I swear to God, Martin Gardner was like a second father to me uh, because I read his books 
diligently, even when I was like 11, 12 years old. I didn't understand all of it or even necessarily a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you'd get chap- into chapters like on null theory or, you know, whatever. Um, but the, the thing is, my reading habit has always been if I don't understand it, gloss over it, come back to it later. Mm-hmm. Because I may very well understand it the next time. Mm-hmm. So, um, which has proven to be some a lot of times the case. But even the parts that I didn't necessarily understand, when you read Martin Gardner's writing about it, there was always something that w- would come out of it like that was interesting or fascinating. He was talking about how computers work. And this is back in a time when computers weren't, any, by today's standards, they were primitive. Yeah. And he explained how to build, essentially, a computer, a, a self-learning computer out of matchboxes and marbles. And you would set these boxes and marbles up black and white marble in each box, and play tic-tac-toe with it. And as you played through the game, you would either remove or add marbles to the box based on whether the computer lost or won on the last move. Well, as you do that, you're eliminating bad moves just simply by removing certain marbles. So by eventually, these match boxes, the simulation of a computer, will play a perfect game every time. Right? Wow. And he demonstrated this in his book, and I actually set it up. I... My poor dad. <laughs> I went and found all, every matchbox I could find in the house, dumped out all the matches, got all the marbles I could. My dad's like, what the fuck is going on with my match? <laughs> They're just all over the counter. <laughs> but I set it up and I, I walked through this. I saw how this this configuration of matchboxes actually learned how to play tic in a sense, mm-hmm. in a computer sense, learned how to play tic-tac-toe. So, um, and then there was always Martin in those columns, uh, you know, and these are all assemblies of columns that Martin Gardner had contributed to Scientific American. Mm -hmm. So that actually got me involved at a pretty early age in just reading Scientific American, which was fascinating, even though I didn't understand any of it, because Scientific American is geared toward at least a college level, and I'm just a kid, you know? But still, the the Martin Gardner's columns were my favorite. I read those books over and over and over again, and I learned good magic tricks out of them. I learned magic theory out of them, because he would talk about um, he'd talk about the Gilbreth Principle. He'd talk about, wow. you know, have you read very many of the Gardner books? No. I've read Mathematics, Magic, and Mystery. Okay. Well, let me let me point this out. If this interests you, all of his books have been collected on CD and are available for a very affordable price. Wow. Yeah. It's like 16, not, not all of his books. All of his books that are compilations from Scientific American oh, okay. are available on one disc. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I have those and I've, I've read them several times since because they're, and they're great references because I've had people come to me and they'd say, do you know of anything I can take to, to engage my second grade class that I'm teaching? And, you know, cause they were a great school teacher. And I'd say, how about, um, hexaflexagons? And I pull up the article from Martin Gardner. I print it up and give it to them. They go, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, different stuff. So, you know, this Gardner collection is fantastic, but, but I, yeah, I think because I had that fascination at that early age, I really kind of adopted certain habitual ways of thinking about things, mm-hmm. you know, um, as far as uh, maybe maybe the best way to describe it is um, it really stimulated and helped formed my spatial and engineering reasoning. I don't know how clear that may be, but if I look at a move now like the diagonal palm shift. I'm actually studying the engineering of it, the mm-hmm. angle of the cards, how to get this card in this specific position so that this hand can receive it in the most immediate way, right? Um, and that's engineering. And I think I'm able to do that because of all the types of things I was reading and doing when I was younger, mm-hmm. because those were the same types of 
systemic thinking, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So, so, um, so I was always drawn towards those types of things, magic more than puzzles and mathematical games, but all three kind of combined together. So, uh, I remember when I was, I can't remember exactly how old I was still in the single digits. Uh, I'm going to show my mom a, mar a card trick. So I took a deck of cards, I shuffled it up and I actually wrote down on the piece of paper, the cards in the order that they were shuffled. And then I took this deck that I was very careful not to mix anymore. And I took this piece of paper and I put it on the floor. My mom was in the kitchen making dinner. She had her back to me. I put the paper on the floor. I put my foot on it so it wouldn't go anywhere. And I said, Mom. And she turned around and I held the top card of the deck up and I held it face toward her. I said, five of hearts. And I put it under the deck and I took the next card. And I would look down like this. King of spades. You know? <laughs> and Six of clubs. <laughs> and to her credit, it took her like five cards before she went, hey, what's going on down there? You know, but at first she was like, how's he doing that? You know, and it was that moment at the beginning when she was like, what the hell is going on? That I was like, magic is cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, this is doable because I'm fooling her. Yeah. You know, even though it was transparent, uh, eventually. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was uh, it was one of those moments that kind of made me think, yeah, I'm sticking with this. So all through my childhood, I was like, uh accumulate and this is like books from the library you know things like that but when i was older 19 years old uh bobo's modern coin magic i saw it in a magic store and i uh, picked it right up and it was one of those cover to cover things you know did, learned everything i could out of it still do a couple of tricks out of it to this day mm -hmm. right um one of the very first magic books i bought on cards no, I'll take that back. It was probably the first. And I mentioned already was the Kabbalah, the three-volume set of Kabbalah. I came back to Oklahoma City, and I saw some magician friends of mine. I said, hey, I bought some books. They said, what would you buy? I said, Kabbalah. And they go, what the fuck is wrong with you? you know? <laughs> They're like, why are you into this stuff? Because <laughs> in their minds, it was like all this abstract, really technical side of hand stuff. But that's what I liked. You know, That's what I really liked. Now, I mentioned Pete Peterson. I went to the store one time. He showed me a trick called Bizarre Twist, the Paul Harris thing where the car changes colors. Mm -hmm. if, so first, it turns face up twice. Mm -hmm. And then um, he offered to sell me the book. And I said, maybe I'll pick it up next time. And I spent some more time in the shop. And then I went home. But I thought about that trick. He didn't teach me how it was done. Mm -hmm. I thought about that trick. And I thought about it. And I thought about it. And I came home. And I thought about it some more. And I thought, hmm, he may have had an extra card. But I don't think he was that skilled. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he only had three cards. Mm -hmm. So eventually, I reconstructed the trick. It took me half the night, but I learned. I learned from doing that that I could do that, right? Yeah. So later on, I realized that a lot of the tricks I came to know, I learned just from seeing on television. Mm -hmm. Because back then, we recorded everything we knew was coming up. So I recorded everything. And I could, I could look at like Daryl doing cardboard chameleons. I reconstructed it because I could tell when he was pushing off with his thumb, even though... Let me tell you this. Daryl was a brilliant sleight of hand artist. He was one of the absolute best. Absolute. He's one of the most competent technic technicians I've ever seen, as well as being a very capable entertainer and performer. But I could still tell just by the thumb and how it was going across whether he was pushing off one or two. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So I was able to tell when the doubles and triples were being done. Yeah. Yeah. But um, and I think I've gotten off track from whatever we were talking about. But, and I apologize. I do tend to ramble. So... Sorry about that. Next question. <laughs> no. Um, oh, we we're talking about my my. How did I get started in magic or yeah. my interest? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's always been there. 
It's always been there. I, oh, here's another memory I have. I was about six or seven years old, grade school, mm-hmm. my first or second grade. And back then it was very, very common for them to bring um, entertainers through. And every, all the kids would get in the auditorium and they would watch a music concert mm-hmm. or, as was often the case, a magician. Uh-huh. This, was, this was informing of me that I had this thought as I was watching this magician, this woman gets in this box, they spin the box around three times, they open the box, she's gone. Mm-hmm. Even at that young age, I'm thinking, I don't know how he did that. Pretty sure it had something to do with that box. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yep. Even at that age. And that's why it didn't impress me. But when, I, when the same magician came on and started doing split card fans, I'm like, oh, How's this working? You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Then I was intrigued because I recognized it wasn't a mechanism in place. There was actually something happening with the hands that was causing these cards to appear out of nowhere. right? And that was a different level of experience for me. And that's why I've always been more engaged with sleight of hand than I have with. Not to knock stage magic. I love watching sure. stage magic, especially well done. When you know, I've always thought especially top, well done. Especially well done, of course. Especially, I've I always, love bad stage, yeah, magic, right. but especially when it's good. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I thought I've always thought Copperfield was excellent. Uh, I've always, uh, you know, uh, there was a magician named Joseph. Do you, do you remember Joseph? He had a, a dove act, right? Joseph Gabriel. Yeah, yeah, Joseph Gabriel. Yeah, yeah, his, and, uh, his bird act is incredible. Oh, it was fantastic. And, uh, but part of the reason it was fantastic for me was it was so crisp mm-hmm. and precise and well-engineered and so well done, you know, that, that even not being a bird magician, even never having handled doves or anything like that, I could sit there and say, this man's got it. Yeah. You know, that was very, very good. Yeah. And uh, I used to watch old footage of Channing Pollock. Did you ever see Channing Pollock do his act on the old Daniel Boone show? No. He played a traveling magician that met Daniel Boone. Oh, wow. And around a campfire, he got up and did part of his act. And I'm like, holy shit. I see why people talk about Channing Pollock the way they do. This guy, he's magic. What he's doing is actual magic. Because it looked like it. It looked like those cards were just materializing. They didn't just spring up from the back of his hand. Yeah. They materialized and just appeared there, you know? Since I'm rambling anyway, please tell you an experience I had. So I get together with some magicians in Dallas. Bill Malone, this is is in the 80s. Bill Malone, he's already by then becoming a very successful and well-known corporate entertainer. He's Mm -hmm. he's getting good shows. He's traveling all over the country. He's got a show in Dallas, right? Roger goes with me down to Dallas. Frank Price joins us. John Mooring comes in. We all spend an evening sessioning, having a great time. Bill's cracking us all up. It's unbelievable the energy this guy has. At one point, we're going to go eat. We're hungry. We get out of the car. And I don't know if you know John Mooring very well, if you've known him. John Mooring was, um, he appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. Mm -hmm. Very, very good stage magician, manipulations. Uh, At that time, he was one of the youngest magicians, if not the youngest, who'd ever traveled around the entire world doing his act. Okay. And he, I don't, he may have been the youngest magician to have been on Ed Sullivan. I can't remember the exact. Might ask Gary Plants about that. Anyway, we're getting, we get out of the car. And all of a sudden, as he's walking through the parking lot, just messing around, cards start appearing at his fingertips. He's just one at a time, 12 at a time. And I'm like, holy shit. I had seen card manipulation before. But remember, John Mooring was one of the absolute best in the world. Mm-hmm. 
And I'd never really seen him do much except the footage I saw from the Sullivan show. But here he was right in front of me. First, I see it out of the corner of my eye. So I'm like, wait a minute, something's going on over here. And my head follows. I can't even stop it from following. And I'm looking at these cards. These fans are just coming out of nowhere. And he's just dropping them on the ground in the parking lot. And I've knit, I was like a layman. I'm like, wow, this is you know, I watch card manipulation. I'm like, it's manipulation. But when I watch John Mooring, it was like on that level of Channing Pollock. It's like, there's no explanation for this. It was. It looks so good, so magical. Mooring was one of the absolute best who ever lived at that kind of magic. He was fantastic. Wow. Yeah. And he just did it on a whim. He just, you know, he just does. At that time, in that time of his life, and whenever he just got, he walked through a parking lot. Here's a fan. Stick it under some wiper blades. Let's go. You know, he just—he's always—he was always messing around. He had a good heart. He was always funny and engaging, and had a sense of humor about everything. And that's just the way he was. He's all of a sudden cards start appearing. Just and I'm doing like, it for the sake of doing oh, it. Yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, he was a great guy. He passed away a couple of years ago. I miss him a lot, but he's fantastic and you know, very good friends with Gary Plants, especially toward the end. But uh, John and Roger were friends for since they were kids. You know. Oh, well. Roger, Roger knew everybody. He literally knew everybody. He, he was on the ground floor of a lot of things. Um, if you trace back the history of things like the uh, Desert Magic Seminar, which eventually became, what do, what do they call it when Rich Block took it over? Um, a what? No, no, it was Joe Stevens had it as a Desert Magic Seminar, and then he wanted, didn't want to do it anymore. So Rich Block and I can't remember his partner's name bought the rights to it, uh-huh. and I can't remember what they called it. But anyway, it still had the word desert in it, mm-hmm. if I remember right. But that whole Desert Magic Seminar thing started, um, if it, but you have to go back to the roots of it. I mean, it's not like Roger invented it, mm-hmm. but it did start with sessions between Roger and Bob Ver- uh, Bob White and a few other guys in Vernon, Texas. Mm-hmm. And then Joe Stevens became kind of involved with that group, and they kept lines of communications. And then Joe Stevens wanted to do uh, a convention in Wichita. Nobody had ever done, if I remember right, a close-up magic convention, purely close-up magic before, or at least not the way Joe wanted to do it. I can't remember exactly what the parameters were. But it was only through Joe's relying on Roger's expertise and Roger's connections throughout the entire country that that was able to happen. And then that eventually grew outgrew Wichita and moved to Las Vegas as a desert magic. And that's a 20-year process, right? But it all started um, on the ground floor with with Roger and a couple of other guys working with Joe, you know. And, um, you know, Roger was influential behind the scenes in a lot of things, a lot of things. He's a good guy, you know. He had, a, he had kind of a laser-like, sometimes acerbic sense of humor. Some people who didn't get him, if, if they were like at a convention and Roger just launched in with lines and stuff, didn't understand that he wasn't attacking them, you know. Um, he was funny as hell, though. <laughs> <laughs> Roger was funny as hell. Yeah. Well, I mean, could you could you paint a picture for him? Well, you know, for, to start with, he was short. <laughs> no, I just, uh, uh, <clears throat> you know, and, and a lot of it was... God, if I were to just recite the lines, you'd think they were stupid. It was just all in the delivery. Yeah. It was all in the attitude. He was a great actor in that sense, in that he, when he delivered a line, it was totally deadpan. Okay, here's one example. And it wasn't his gag. You know the old gag with the coffee creamer? I think that came from like Matt King or possibly Penn & Teller, mm-hmm. where you take, 
you have a coffee creamer hidden in your hand and you start acting like your eye is bothering you. Mm -hmm. So you pretend to pick up a fork and jab it in your eye, but you really jab it to the coffee creamer, which is, and the cream squirts everywhere. So it looks like clabber just shot out of your eye all over the table. Mm -hmm. So it's gross as hell, right? Yeah. Okay. I'd never seen this gag before, and I'm sitting at a convention in Tulsa, Oklahoma. There's another gentleman there named Ralph and, and Rogers the third, and we're sitting around the table. And Ralph is talking, and I'm doing my usual thing of not saying a word, just being quiet. <laughs> I was very quiet back then. And uh, so Roger and Ralph are going back and forth, and Roger reaches up and touches the corner of his eye, you know. And they keep talking, and Roger comes up and rubs a little more. And they keep talking, and Roger comes up and starts rubbing it like it's bothering him now. And uh, Ralph eventually notices, says, are, are you okay? Something bothering you? And Rod says, you know, it's just like a pressure. It says, I can't, I'm not sure what's, well, let me just relieve that. And he picks up the fork and he turns his hand so that he's got the creamer hidden in his hand. And the fork goes right into the creamer. He squeezes it and it shoots out all over the table. I fucking died. <laughs> I was laughing so, and Ralph had tears coming out of his eyes. His glasses came off. He just threw them to the table so he could wipe his eyes. But here's the thing about Roger. Never cracked. Roger picked up a napkin. He's got this shit dripping down the side of his face and coming off his jowl like this, <laughs> dripping onto his shirt. He's like, you know, and he's not paying attention to this. He's just wiping the table. I'm sorry, guys. And he's just totally straight face. He goes, man. I hate it when that happens. And every time I looked up, I started all over again. And I literally started the blackout because I was laughing so hard. Oh, my hard. God. That's amazing. But it was only because whenever I started to recover and I looked up, he was still just... Just cleaned it up. Like, it was, like it was just, what a day, you know? And totally straight face. He's just like, oh, what a day. And he's wiping the table. And he really wasn't wiping. He was just kind of moving it around so he could keep going, you know? Because if he cleaned the table, it'd be over. So he's just kind of, put, kind of pushing the cream around and wiping it. But, and, but never cracked. Never cracked. And that's how Roger was in every gag or joke he delivered. He was just like dead on with the expression and wouldn't give in until it was done, until it was through, right? Uh, in that sense, uh, he was uh, amazing as well, not just the sleight of hand and mm -hmm. the magical thinking. Hey, what a name for a podcast. Huh. But, um, yeah, and, uh, but he was also, he was one of those guys that was always intent on giving back to magic. Uh-huh. Kind of got in trouble for that a couple times with other guys, you know, that said, you should be teaching these young guys that, you know, but, uh, but Roger was always, um, and he was, sometimes he was obstinate about it because it was his, his, uh, almost like a mission to him to share as much as he possibly could yeah. with, uh, the younger crowd coming up, making sure that they understood as best as he could. So here's a story to that extent. And this is a story told to me by a man that I met at the convention not too long ago that knew Roger. He said, the first time I ever met Roger, I was at a magic convention. I knew who Roger was. I looked over, and uh, and this is after Roger had come out with uh, his color-changing silk routine. Okay. So this guy had been working on the silk routine, but he thought he might need some help. So he sees Roger at this table at this convention, and around this table are Roger and um, I think Larry Jennings and, you know, Paul Diamond and, uh, you know, just a bunch of known names, right? Sure. And the guy was too intimidated to walk up. So he's like 20 feet from the table just standing there, not knowing if he should just turn around and go back. But Roger saw him, right, standing there. And so Roger says, hey, how you doing? You know, you need to talk to me? So Roger beckoned him over. Yeah. So this guy comes over and he says, uh, I've been working on this color. And I didn't know 
if it was even appropriate to ask, but I thought maybe if you had a little bit of time this weekend, you could help me with it. And Roger just turned to the whole table and he says, gentlemen, I'll be back. And he took this guy up to his hotel room. They spent like four hours wow. going over that and a bunch of other stuff. Because that's the kind of guy Roger was. If he saw you were sincere, he was there all night with you, you know. And it, it, he would he he would just leave these other guys behind because you know he knew them already. Yeah, you know. But he needs to help this guy. So there we go. That's that's Roger in a nutshell, right? That's amazing. Yeah, that's the way he was. That's the way he was with me. Yeah, we were a little more. Uh, back and forth about it because we knew each other so well after a time. We were always insulting each other, you yeah. know. But uh, but Roger was very very giving. Did, him, yeah. did Roger have a big influence on your style of comedic intonation? <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's possible, mm -hmm. but I kind of think even early on when we were first getting to know each other, we always both kind of had the same rhythm, which is why we were able to go back and forth as easily as we did because it was almost from the get-go mm -hmm. you know so yeah i don't know what you mean by comedic intonation i just mean <laughs> i just mean like uh the jokes the gags the you know where where did yeah. you where did you develop your comedic interest um i don't know that i actually have a comedic inclination at all i mean i do i love jokes mm -hmm. you know i don't know that i'm actually good at telling them or anything like that but i do and i've always want I've always liked collecting them. Mm -hmm. So in the past, you have quite a collection. Yeah. Well, I don't know, but I mean, in the past maybe two years, I've started actually saving the jokes. I come up. I had a bunch of them rattling around in my head and I might start a word document and then it would peter off mm -hmm. or I might start writing them down. And that would peter off, but they're all still tumbling around up here. So I eventually, at one point I started just saving the Evernote, which was a very convenient thing to do. And then once that, um, uh, started happening, I started assertively looking for jokes because I love coming across new stuff. It's hard for me to come across a joke I haven't heard before, mm -hmm. you know, but uh, I've, I eventually still do. So I just, when I see one, I, I like that one. I'll put it in the Evernote file. Heard that one already. I'll go past that one. Oh, did I hear about that one? Let me search my Evernote file. Not in there. <laughs> Copy and paste, right? <laughs> so at present, I think I have about almost 1,400 unique, wow. unique one-liners and jokes and, uh, it's weird because even though I haven't seen one in a while, somebody will say something and it'll trigger and it'll just flow right out into the conversation, which is the best way to tell a joke is mm -hmm. if it just arises out of the conversation. Right. That's my favorite uh, situation. So and that happens now because I've had this file that I revisit and uh, read through every once in a while. What is it about going through it? Do you like so do you like like the technical structure of a one liner or do you like being able to just let one slip out during the conversation technical structure i would say both because there there is a, there is a formula to a joke and mm -hmm. I, I can't really i don't know that i can even tell you what it is but i know if i hear this joke that's not it that that joke's got all kinds of problems with it mm -hmm. and it's almost like watching a magic trick and you think oh there are situ there are issues going on there that yeah. we probably need to work on jokes are kind of the same way and you know i wrote a, 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 a booklet called elements and i think i talked about it and there were um, you know, magic tricks can have these issues and it's as if you were telling a joke and, you know, here's the joke. So a blonde walks up to a counter and says, I would like to order a hamburger and fries, please. And the man behind the counter says, ma'am, this is a library. And she says, oh, I'm sorry. I would like to order a hamburger and fries, please. So that's not the best joke in the world, right? But there's that 
compact structure to it mm-hmm. to where you tell everybody they, what they need to know mm-hmm. so that by the time you get to that last line, they understand everything that they have to have to get the, the joke. Mm-hmm. Right? But if you were to tell the joke this way, so this blonde's driving around one Thursday in her brand new Mercedes. She's got the top down. It's a nice breezy day. She's only got about a half tank gas, but she thinks she can get there. And she eventually pulls up to this building. It's a big concrete building with columns in the front, right? But she doesn't know where she is exactly. But she goes inside, and she's thinking she's kind of hungry. So she walks up to the counter. There's a guy standing there. He's got a suit on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You start telling – these things have nothing to do with the joke. So by yeah. the time you get to the punchline, you're like, why, why was I giving all this other information? Well, in that book, the whole point was you can do the same thing with a magic trick. Mm-hmm. You can put in details and information that the audience absolutely doesn't need and doesn't contribute to the trick in any way. Mm-hmm. So if there's anything in there like that, take it out. Because what you want at the end is when you get to that last line of the trick, when, when whatever is supposed to happen finally happens, the audience has what they need to know and only what they need to know. Because my experience has been if they have extraneous information they need to deal with, they're going to try to resolve it at that point. Mm -hmm. Because they're like, well, what about the horse that you talked about? You Mm -hmm. know, how does that play into this coin appearing under the glass? They don't get it because they're trying to fit everything in to what you gave them. So you only give them what they need. And I've seen so many magic tricks ruined that way as well as jokes. You know, that's the whole point. (laughs) No, I think that's amazing. And I'm just sitting here thinking Mm -hmm. about. How that applies to tricks that I do. Mm. What 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 are the what are the little things that could just where can I trim the fat? Yeah, and you know I've started thinking about magic tricks like as if they were stories. And when I say story, I don't necessarily mean a narrative like a short story or a novel, although those are stories as well. Stories in the general sense in which you are given um, and, and you are given information through the form of some type of a tale, so that by the time you reach the end. It has some sort of meaning to you. Okay, mm-hmm. so that that can happen in words. It can happen by you looking at a painting. It can happen to you by listening to a song. These all uh, give you stories, right? So, um, if in a well-told story, just like we we're talking about the joke or the magic tricks, you have what you need and no more. But in a poorly told story, you've got all this crap you need to deal with, mm-hmm. and uh, it doesn't need to be there. So, I'm a big fan of what Michelangelo is purported to have said, which is. Anything that does not add detracts, you know, a, a, a detail that you put into a trick or that exists in a trick might only be neutral. It's neither positive nor negative. Mm-hmm. But if you can take it out, if it's neutral, then you probably should because it's still static. Mm-hmm. Even static is you know, neutral to static. So uh, it's not helping anything. It's not hurting anything necessarily, but you're not as lean as you need to be. Right. Yeah. And uh, now I'm not saying that's an absolute rule. But as a general principle, that's what works. Mathematically, it works, yeah. right? Because if the mass is bigger, then the percentage is going to be. Yeah. So yeah. If you can reduce the mass and keep the percentage or keep the proportions. Look at, look at you go, boy. <laughs> I get it. I get it, Danny. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> how How has your understanding of, um, I lost the thought. <laughs> Convention, convention heads, headspace is sinking in. Oh, I thought I bored you to the point where your mind was numb. No, no, not yet anyway. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll get you there. Yep, yep. It's only a matter of time. <laughs> um, there are a couple of things. So, when I talked to Gary last year, mm. he gave me a couple of things to ask you about. Really? Yeah. Bob Stencil, Brother John Hammond, 
and John Cornelius. He also mentioned Roger Klaus, but we've talked about Roger a bit. Okay. That's it. So what are your questions? I, you, you have what you need. <laughs> oh, that's all I have. That's it. That's it. You got it. <laughs> you remind me that, you know, I served on a jury duty one time. And we were so concerned about the details of the case. And we kept sending notes to the judge. What about this? What about that? And the judge only kept passing back the note with the note, with his note. You have everything you need to resolve this case. And I'm like, you mother. <laughs> that's no help. I understand that you're trying to keep yourself out of legal trouble. But we're, we need help here. But anyway, um, so you mentioned Bob Stencil. Bob Stencil, Brother John, and okay. John Cornelius. The 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 last two I didn't really know. I okay. met Bob Hammond once. Okay, John, um, I I don't know real well. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't. There's you know, I guess maybe since the 1980s I've talked to John on two occasions. Uh-huh. <laughs> we just don't cross paths that often. Sure, right. but um, Bob, I knew better. I met Bob through Bill. So um, I'm living in Oklahoma City. At that time, Bill is living in Chicago. He is not yet the monster corporate entertainer that he is today. Bill isn't yet the monster. Right, right, right. Bill is doing, uh, he's working in bars and doing shows. Mm -hmm. And he's busy all the time. So he is being successful, but he's not at his present level yet. So um, he calls me on the phone because we're talking pretty regularly. And he says, I've got some guys coming in to Chicago and I would like you to come in too because one I know and the other one I don't know very well but I would like you there because I know you better and I would like somebody there that I can feel comfortable with Mm -hmm. and I said who are they he said well the one I kind of know is Michael Skinner I said I'm in (laughs) (laughs) he said the other one I don't really know is Bob Stencil Bob Stencil is from Detroit actually actually Bob lived outside Detroit in a little town called Warren suburb so I said, that sounds like fun. So I made the arrangements and I went up there and we were going to spend a weekend. Michael Skinner, Bob Stencil, Bill and myself. Okay. Um, so when I get there, Bill picks me up at the airport. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to ask, how old is Michael Skinner at this point? How old are you guys and how old is uh, Michael? This would have been in the mid to late 1980s. Okay. So... Are we going back 30 years now? Mm-hmm. Mm, wow. Time flies. So anyway, I get to um, the hotel room. I said, <laughs> I said hotel, motel, the diplomat motel. Mm. <laughs> Please don't mind the bullet holes in the wall. They're a feature, not a bug. Um, and uh, all the cars outside were like yellow taxi cabs. Hmm. So anyway, um, <laughs> so I get there and I get in the room that I'm sharing with Bob Stencil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bob had decorated the room with heart balloons. So instantly I'm like, hmm, interesting man. I did not know. I don't I didn't know anything about him. So I guess my first revelation about Bob is that he not only was a magician, but he fancied himself a uh um an expert on you know balloons, mm-hmm. uh, making balloon figures. So <laughs> So as the weekend goes on, you know, Michael comes in. We have a great time. I mean, there's all kinds of sessioning all the time around, all day in, day out. And I'm getting to know Bob more and more, even over those short few days. I found out that he plays chess. Mm-hmm. The way I found that out was at one point we're sitting in the motel room just before, and Michael's already retired. And uh, Bill's getting ready to go home. And Bob looks at me and he goes, you play chess, I hear. And I said, 
yes, I've played in tournaments. I've enjoyed it. He goes, okay. And he just starts setting up a board right between our two beds, right? And I said, oh, I guess this is what we're doing now because I was getting ready. It's three in the morning. <laughs> I was getting ready to light up. But okay, we're, we're playing chess. So um, Bill's sitting there watching for a little while. He doesn't really know what to say because this even strikes him as a little odd. Yeah. But we're moving back and forth. And finally, Bill, I guess, has had enough. So he, just, he says, I'll hook up with you guys tomorrow. I'll see you later. And so we say, okay. So we finished the chess game because eventually I win, right? I said, Bob, that was that was a good game. Thank you very much. I'm really tired. I have to go to bed. Bill goes. I'm Bob goes. Yeah, okay. He doesn't say much, right? I lie down. He lies down. He lies down on top of his sheets and comforter, right on his back, well, almost like a corpse. And he's just lying there with his arms at his side. You know, lights go off. It's very quiet in the room. All I can hear is maybe a little bit of a fan. About five minutes go by and I'm just about to drift off. And all of a sudden this voice comes from the ether and it says, you know, if I'd move my bishop to the knight's bishop three. And I'm thinking, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> he's sitting there analyzing the whole game again and, is, and he's speaking out loud, you know. And I don't even respond. I just start snoring, you know. But that's just, he was always that kind of, deeply internalized um, analytical kind of guy. Uh And he thought about that all, he thought that way all the time. Yeah. He was very theoretical about things. Now, I did not know that when I met him, he already had an underground reputation. Um, Even, even back in the sixties, routines had gotten around like stencils aces, which had become, the rage at the castle for a while because nobody had ever seen an ace assembly like this. Not only could, had nobody ever seen an ace assembly like this, nobody could really do it justice. It's not an easy routine to do, but Bob could do it, you know, perfectly, of course, because it was his routine. And there were a few others like that that were getting around. And um, so already by that time, Bob had become kind of a figure, mm-hmm. but not a well-known one amongst, you know, the plebes like me at that time, you know. So, um, so I'm getting to him uh, in in my way, and and you know, at one point during the routine, he actually did stencils aces for me, and I'm like, that's the weirdest ace routine I've ever seen, but it's also possibly the best because I've never seen anything like it. Mm-hmm. But it's so fooling, I can't figure out how those queens were getting, you know, from one place to the other. And um, but just the conversations with Bob were. At one, and, and this happened at a different time, not that weekend, but one time Bill and Bob and I were sitting around and I mentioned some trick and some technique and Bob just looks at us and he goes, you have to peel back the veneer of civilization to get to the wilderness underneath. And Bill and I just looked at each other like, what the hell? <laughs> Where did that even come from? I get what he was saying after, yeah. once I thought about it, but I'm like, Oh, that's that was the weirdest way to put something I've ever heard in my life. But that's kind of the he was always working theories in his head, and and we started corresponding back and forth, Bob and I. And I would get these twelve and fifteen handwritten letters on yellow legal paper. You ask anybody who knows Bob Stencil, they've gotten the same letters, these mm-hmm. chicken scratch on yellow legal paper that contained some of them. What I thought might have been some of the most brilliant thinking I've seen up to that point, right? He would, he would just outline a routine and talk about why this. He told me at one point in a letter, he goes, you know, Alex Elmsley never understood the aces. 
I never did understand what he meant by that. Why did he think Alex Elmsley never understood the aces? Something about the way Alex Elmsley did all of his ace assemblies that Bob said he doesn't get it, you know? And um, But Bob was very straightforward like that. Uh-huh. And when he said something like that, he didn't mean it as a criticism. Sure. It was just, eh, it's, you, know, it's, you don't get it. You're, it's not working, you know? And um, But that doesn't mean he was always cruel either because you might show him something and Bob would look at it and he goes, uh, that looks good in your hands, which was once I got to know him, I realized it, that meant it didn't look good to him at all. But yeah. he was being kind, right? Uh-huh. But uh, these were, uh, I feel like I'm painting a negative picture of him because he was actually a very kind and very giving person. Okay, here's an example. Okay. <laughs> Bob, Bob's kind of quirkiness about things. So we go, um, he had just moved from war and he retired. He moved to Oklahoma City, actually a town north called Guthrie. He lets me know he's in town. He wants to meet me at a place called Shepherd Mall. I don't know why he picked a shopping mall, but there it is. So we meet at Shepherd Mall and we're walking around. And at one point I'm walking and I'm talking and I'm talking and I'm talking and I realize he's not even there. And I turn around and he's like six doors back, just standing there. I don't even know what he's looking at, you know. So I go back and I I go back to where he is and we resume as if nothing happened. I don't mention it. And we, and, and we come, go around the corner and there's a bunch of clowns. There's like six of them. And they're just doing balloon figures for people walking through the mall, giving to the children, to the ladies, right? And, of course, I mentioned Bob has an affinity for balloon figures. So he walks up. And he's wearing a long brown coat. He's got his hands in the outer pockets like he's homeless, you know? Sure. And he's just standing there, not even moving, just watching. And I can see these clowns doing these. And every once in a while, one of them will glance over and just keep doing what they're doing. But, like, what is that guy, you know? doing there but at one point um bob walks up to this female clown after she's done uh with this young child and he says to her you did a very good job with that heart now you know heart balloon you just blow it up and tie it off Mm -hmm. you pinch it at the at the uh juncture to make sure it has a nice crease in the middle of the two uh i don't even know what you call them the, the top part of the heart but um she blew it up and gave it to the kid he says you did a very nice job with that heart and she looks at him like that was the weirdest thing anybody could ever say because it probably, in her experience, was the weirdest thing somebody could say <laughs> about a heart balloon. So she says the only thing somebody can say, which is, thank you, you know. He says, very symmetrical. And he just turns around and steps back about six feet, you know. And she goes on and does what she's doing. Now he's focusing on somebody else, this, this guy who's doing balloon animals. And once this guy's done with whoever he's working for, Bob says, uh, you're Make a balloon animal without ever tying the knot. And the guy says, I'm sorry, excuse me. <laughs> you know, Bob repeat, and he says it just like that, real slowly. You ever make a balloon animal without ever tying the knot? You know, and the guy goes, No, I've never done that. And but remember, Bob had his hands in his pockets. Uh-huh. So his left hand comes out with a perfectly pearl white 260E balloon. And he blows it up so slow, like, you're about to get a lesson. (laughs) (laughs) And he blows up. He goes. I swear it took a minute for that (laughs) balloon to be fully extended. I'm like, oh, my God, it's about to go down. I can't believe this. You know, so Bob's got this balloon fully extended. And without tying the knot, he makes a perfect swan and just hands it to the guy. Right. Wow. And he puts his hands back in his pockets. And the guy goes. 
wow, that's impressive. And Bob, and Bob doesn't even acknowledge what the guy just said. Bob goes, do you ever make a balloon animal one-handed? And the guy goes, no, I've never made a balloon animal. And both hands come out, each one of them holding a white pearl <laughs> 260E balloon. He puts one of these and he blows them up simultaneously. And he ties the knots, right? And he holds each one by the center. And with both hands, boop, 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 perfect puppies. Hands them to the guy. Oh right gosh. Now the guy's holding three balloons. And the guy goes, wow, these are fantastic. And Bob doesn't say where well, he just turns around and walks off. <laughs> right? Lesson's over. We're done. That's just the way Bob was internally, right? So Bob and I, we walk off and we go sit in this place that's set up like a sidewalk cafe. And we start doing going over card routines. And stuff and at one point we're doing oil and water i remember this very clearly and all these clowns come in dressed in full clown garb and sit down to the table like maybe 10 feet away and we're doing card tricks and i can see them talking and they're over looking at us doing card tricks and eventually one of them works up the nerve and he comes over and he he doesn't even look at me he's looking right at bob and bob's got his elbows on the table in front of him looking down at my cards never looks up to acknowledge the guy is standing there so the guy stands there for the longest time before he decides to go ahead and speak, right? Because mm -hmm. Bob just doesn't even acknowledge him. And the guy says, uh, we were very impressed by, you know, your balloon animals. And we actually have like a club of, of people who sit around and, try, you know, uh, talk about ways to do things better. And we were wondering if you'd like to come in and talk to us about things and maybe show us a few things. And again, Bob never took his eyes off the cards. He just goes, I don't do that. <laughs> yeah. And the guy goes, okay, um, thank, thanks for your time. <laughs> you know? Oh, my gosh. And, we and again, you know, I don't think Bob was trying to be mean or cruel. It's just he didn't have time for it. I don't, I don't know how, exactly how to explain it. Because in all my experiences with him, Bob was giving, mm -hmm. sharing to a great degree, complimentary, supportive, it's just when things like that happened, you know, I really think Bob was just trying to show them there's something beyond what they had even thought of. But that's the end of the lesson as far as he's concerned. Yeah. I want you to see that there's something beyond what you're doing. But, you know, I'm not going to walk you through all this. I don't have time for this. You know, <laughs> I just want you to know that, you know, there's a next level out there. I really yeah. think that's where he was coming from. And in his mind, it was a favor. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, 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 it's odd. But everything Bob did looked great. Because he thought it through to like, you know, I, uh, we also talk about how Roger thinks this thing, things through to the nth detail. But Bob was always like nth squared. Oh, wow. Know? It's just amazing some of the things he would come up with. And he, would, he would come up with the ploys of, of planned accidents where it looked like he just dropped a card and then he'd go back and pick it up. But it, it, that enabled him to make changes to the situation so subtly, so drastically to where the whole deck might be in a different order by the time he got that card picked up. You know, it's just, he would think about these different, and I have tricks now that I do that I realized that thinking came from Bob Stencil, you know, like I do uh, Vernon's Chinese classic with the hand-ping chin move where mm -hmm. all the coins travel from the left hand to join the coins in the right. And there's this one weak moment in the middle of the routine where I need to get pick up all the coins from the table. And I was having trouble thinking of a way to cover the fact that I had this weak uh, aspect of my hand that people might see the coins inside when they weren't supposed to. And my solution was that it was to pick up all the coins except one. Because my realization was that when you leave one coin on the table, you don't even realize it because you're too busy talking to people. Nobody can pay attention to what you're saying because you're so fixed on the fact that, that coin is on the table out of place. Mm -hmm. It bothers them. 
that they miss everything else that's going on. Everything. They don't hear what you're saying. They don't see the weak aspect of the hand. They don't see coins that aren't supposed to be there. And then while I'm talking, I just glance down like I don't like I'd see it out of the corner of my eye. I just pick it up and keep talking. And I can see people sit back and just relax now because yeah. <laughs> it's done. It's taken care of. It was bothering such a great degree. Now, now I can pay attention again. But now. The work is all finished and everything's covered. And I really think that came from like hanging out with Bob Stencil and seeing some of his applications with his planned accidents and stuff. But, uh, you know, just he was a brilliant thinker, just a brilliant thinker, but also a little out there, too. So anytime you, you study this thinking, you always had to think of the aspect of how do I bring this into what I'm doing, bring it in from outer space and, you know make it real here right <laughs> yeah and it wasn't that hard i'm not saying it was he was a uh, in a 12th dimension but um he was a little out there <laughs> but he was a great guy and he was funny he was funny as hell he was just a wonderful wonderful man in many many ways and i really feel blessed to have known him also at the same time i knew if i ever called him on the phone i'm in for a four-hour ride <laughs> so i better clear my day because there's no 20 30 minute phone calls with bob yeah doesn't happen Sometimes I'd, he'd call me, I'd answer the phone, and the first words out of his mouth, not hello, not how you doing, the first words were, got a deck? Because when I heard that, I knew I'm going to see something good. Mm -hmm. It's going to be fed to me over the phone, I'm going to have cards in hand, and it's going to be good. Got a That's deck. That's cool. Yeah. And he would, he would do that. Bill talks about that. One time, Bob became ill. Bill visited him in the hospital. He walks in, and there's Bob lying in the hospital bed. Apparently asleep, unconscious, out of it, whatever. Bill's like, oh, he looks terrible. And he, he doesn't know what to do or say. He's just standing there. And without even opening his eyes, Bob goes, got a deck, you know? And he immediately launches into the session. Right? Wow. But that was just his way. Just his way. That's amazing. He was a fascinating guy. He was always, he would always surprise you. And uh, um, some people who didn't know how to take him uh, just got mad at him. You know, because that happens because sometimes it, it could seem like he was critical of you when he really wasn't. He was uh -huh. just trying to help you be better. So. That's, a, that's a fine line to walk. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I met Brother Hammond once. Again, this was at a Joe Stevens videotaping. Brother Hammond was there to do his tapes for the Greater Magic Video Library series. Um, Roger, one of, his, uh, one of his lines whenever we would be hanging out at conventions, he would do a trick for somebody, and then later I'd say, you know, Roger, you really fooled him with that. Or I'd say something to that effect, and Roger would just look at me straight-faced. He kind of would gruff up his voice a little bit, and he'd say, well, he had it coming. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Which it was always funny. when always caught me off guard whenever he'd say, he had it coming. You know, So uh, Roger had a bunch of signatures like that. And I would, on this particular trip, this was not our first visit to Wichita. We'd gone up several times to watch a lot of those tapings. Uh -huh. I was there for Don Allen, Eugene Burgers, a bunch of these and they were all, it was always fun and wonderful to go. Borger is about a four-hour drive from Oklahoma City. Okay. And then we would drive from there straight to Wichita. On this particular occasion, we were going to pick up Judge Frank Price, who is from Houston, Texas. Frank um, passed away just a few days ago. Wonderful magician. Great mm -hmm. guy. Great character. One of Roger's absolute best friends in the whole world all of his life was Judge Frank Price. Um, but we're going to go pick him up at the airport, and then all three go together to Wichita to, to uh, watch Brother Hammond do his taping. So um, I drive. At that time, I had a basic Toyota van. Uh, the, these types of vans had, basic, uh, had really just recently come out on the market. Mm -hmm. So the model I got didn't even have a radio. That's how basic it was. <laughs> okay. 
So because it didn't have a radio, I would take a boombox and I would listen to Led Zeppelin cassette tapes all the way down to Borger, Texas for four hours. Nice. I was a big Led Zepp kid. So uh, when I get there, I pull up to his house and I knew exactly what was going to happen because it happened every time. Uh, so I put the boom box in the back because I knew Roger would want to run errands. It's, he doesn't even say, come on in. He says, we, we got to go to the post office. So mm-hmm. I get out of the van. I walk up to the door. He's already got the door open. He sees me. He comes to the door. He says, we got to go to the post office. I says, okay. I knew it. Right? <laughs> so we get in the van. And as we're driving to the post office in Borger, I say something to the effect of, because um, I used to work at the Postal Service at that time. I said, how many people work in your post office? And he looks at me and goes, about half of them, you know. So I said, okay, all right, whatever. <laughs> but um, about halfway there, he says, do you have seat warmers in this van? And I said, I don't even have a radio, Roger. This is No, I don't have seat warmers because at that time they were like a luxury item, seat warmers. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, maybe a tenth or two tenths of a mile later, he goes, you know, I really feel like something's stinging me, like a wasp or an insect or something. I said, I'm sorry, Roger. I don't know what's happening. I, there's nothing, you know, I don't know what's going on. So um, we get to the post office. He gets out to go inside. And while he's gone, I'm curious about what he was saying in the van. I reached out on that touch. This all leads up to Brother Hammond, by the way. Don't think I'm just rambling. I am just rambling. But anyway, um, he t- I touched the seat that he had just vacated and my fingertips start to burn a little bit. And I think, oh, 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 crap. So I get out of the van. I go to the back. I, I raise up the hatchback. And there's that boom box. And the back of it is literally bubbling like this. It's actively bubbling. Mm-hmm. So I go get some newspapers. I wipe it out of the trash can. I wipe it down. I pry it open. And these batteries are just leaking all over the place, oh these God. D-sized batteries. So I pull those out. I wipe them off. I throw them away. I, I go back. I lay newspapers down in the seat. I blot up as much as I can first. Then I lay these newspapers down. Roger comes back and he goes, what's going on? I said, Roger, I'm really, really sorry. I had this boom Boombox in the passenger seat. The batteries leaked. That's why you were feeling what you were feeling. We probably we need to get you home and you know get some baking soda on you or get you cleaned up or something. He goes, no, we got to go pick up Frank. I said, he, it's forty five minute drive to Amarillo. We you got to go take care of this for. He goes, no, we can't be late for Frank. So I said, oh okay. So we get in the van and we head off to Amarillo, Texas. And uh, he's still complaining that this thing's you know hurting him. So all the way to Amarillo, I'm hearing about it. We go pick up Frank. He immediately tells Frank that I've assaulted him, that I've injured him with this battery acid. <laughs> Frank says, well, we need to get you looked at. I said, he says, no, we got to get back. we got to get back to Borger and pick up stuff, go to Wichita. So we drive all the way back to Borger. And uh, I said, Roger, we might need to go get you to a doctor or something. And Roger goes, no, no, let's have lunch. Right? So I don't know why he's ignoring this thing, but he, while simultaneously complaining about it the whole mm-hmm. time. But we're sitting there in this restaurant. And he's throwing out lines like, you know what really chaps my ass, you know? Or we'd sit there for a, a few minutes, he'd go, well, at least I got a place to keep my dob, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And at one point, he goes in the restroom to actually visibly check on what's going on. And he comes back out and he goes, I'm bleeding back there. <laughs> you know, it's drawing blood. I said, Roger, we got to get you to the doctor if it's that bad. He goes, I'll just go home and change pants. It's, it's fine. I'll change clothes. So we go to his house. He's just not listening. He's, he wants to get to Wichita. So he changes clothes. He he cleans up as much as he can. We get all the way to Wichita. Uh, I have so much anxiety. <laughs> I know, right? So it's the night before the taping. So we go to Joe Stevens's house. There's Brother John Hammond, the most gracious human being who ever lived. Right, Brother uh, John Mendoza came with him. John is helping him get around. Um, and uh, at one point, Amy Stevens, Joe Stevens's daughter, who's kind of directing the project asks Brother Hammond, 
Um, just so we know what type of camera angles we need and things like that, what type of uh, card tricks do you think you'll be doing tomorrow? Now, he's Brother John is sitting at the end of a dining table, mm-hmm. and I'm sitting to his left, and Amy's sitting to his right. And Brother Hammond says, well, I don't know. Let me just show you. So he turns to me, and he does literally two hours worth of all this stuff that I'd never seen because the book hadn't come. Did the book come out yet? I can't, I don't, if it had come out, I hadn't seen it yet. Mm-hmm. So it was all the stuff that had, that to my eyes were fresh, right? Except for one or two things like the, the twins, sure. you know, and maybe the two card trick, you know, things that have been out there a little bit, mm-hmm. but he does, he does the Marx brothers. He does the big Panther. I'm like, how are these fucking cards jumping around everywhere? I don't get it. He does the magical cards, all this beautiful stuff. And it, it looks great. I'm, everything bit of it's because his thinking was so different. Is fooling me. So this is like the one of the best moments in my life. <laughs> I'm sitting next to Brother Hammond, and he's performing for me. Now, you people at home can't see this. I'm doing the two thumbs for me, right? <laughs> so that was great. The next day, taping. Roger's still hurt. It's still causing him pain even, right? So we go to the studio. They tape for a few hours, right? Every once in a while, I ask Roger, are you okay? He goes, yeah, I'm okay, right? So at one point, they take a break in midday. Roger, Frank Price, myself, Brother John, John Mendoza, go back behind the set, and the th- five of us are just back there. It's like if, if you can imagine looking at the back side of these walls that are propped up, like like in a theater set, and we're sitting there talking, and all of a sudden Roger talks to Brother Hammond, and he points at me, and Roger goes, "This guy," and Brother Hammond is like, "I'm," he's so genteel, you couldn't uh-huh. believe what a gentle man he was. Brother Hammond's like, uh, "Excuse me." And uh, Roger's like, battery acid. That's all he said, battery acid. And Brother Hammond is, I don't understand, you know. And <laughs> Roger says, well, he assaulted me with battery acid right on my ass, you know. And Brother Hammond is like, oh. <laughs> and Roger goes, I'll show you. And he unbuckles his pants, turns around, pulls his pants and underwear down and shows Brother Hammond his bare, burnt ass, right? Oh, my God. And Brother Hammond gave the only response that a brethren monk could give, which was to go, oh, <laughs> what could he say? But he's like, oh, clearly what he was seeing wasn't very pretty, right? Uh-huh. Mendoza's cracking up, right? He's like, he couldn't believe what was happening. So, <laughs> Roger eventually pulls his pants back up. I'm, I swear they, they were down for what felt like forever. It was probably only about 15 seconds, but it felt like an eternity. And and they call for this taping to begin again. So brother John, who really can't wait to get out of there by this point, mm-hmm. and then just <laughs> let me tell you, he may not be perfectly settled inside as he's trying to do his card tricks for the next part of his taping. I don't know, but just before they begin, I turn to Roger. We're still in the back, and I say, I cannot believe you showed a brother and monk your bare ass. And Roger looks at me and he goes, He had it coming. <laughs> oh man. I lost it. I fucking lost it. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. He calls me a few days later. Third degree burns. He had to have skin grafts. Oh, my gosh. I know, right? We could have taken care of it that day, but no, no. no. But and uh, so in, in the book In Concert, there's a passing reference to battery acid in one of the chapters. It's just it's fleeting and uh, there's no context to it, but it's in there. But that's what it refers to is that whole weekend. Roger and I had a good time. <laughs> yeah. He was one of the, he's one of the best guys I ever met. 
I think uh, if you ask Bill, he'll tell you the same thing because Bill has a lot of respect for him. Too. Yeah. I miss him a lot. Even now, you know, Roger passed away in 2008, but I will see an idea or read something or see a video of something. And I even it's something reflexively, I got to show this to Roger. Oh, and then I, I realize right away, I can't show it to Roger. You know, he would have appreciated it very, very much. But yeah. And this reminds me of one time when I was talking to Michael Feldman at a Pebble Palooza. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to Michael about how these people have passed on. Roger, Michael Skinner. Larry Jennings, and how even now I wish I could share ideas with them and uh, show them things I know they would appreciate. And I looked at Michael and I paused and I said, oh, well, they're lost. (laughs) 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 It was an impromptu line, but I caught myself off guard with that one. I thought, well, that's that's not bad. I might use that from time to time. (laughs) I'll put that in the Evernote. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they're lost. (laughs) They're lost. Uh, well, we've done almost two and a half hours. We can go on or not. It's up to you. I, I, you know, the, the poor people at home. But, you know, at the same time, they can turn it off. I don't feel they sorry for them. They can turn it off. Yeah. yeah. And they can turn it back on yeah. when they feel like it. It's whatever you want to do. It's your show. You tell me when we stop. Because I know you can edit it, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I'm not. But, <laughs> but I could. It's your call. Do you, because you've gone, you've been like professionally in and out of magic. Yes. Professionally. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been uh, like really burned out where you had to take a couple years maybe or six months or something and just step away? And- Not from performing. Performing mm-hmm. seems to be self-vitalizing, if that makes any sense. Because when I do it, it tends to create an energy that keeps me up all the time. Mm-hmm. keeps me elevated all the time. Uh, there were times when I would work magic in restaurants either in Oklahoma City or I would work magic down in Florida. Because I worked for Bill for a while when I was down there. I was one of his employees, you know. Yeah. But, um, uh, and at the end of the evening, all I wanted to do was more magic. Because it does give you kind of a high. Not just the magic, but interacting with the people is what gives you that that energetic feeling, even if you've been doing it for six hours. This is the way I felt about it, mm-hmm. right? So, a lot of times those nights, I would leave and I would go to a different restaurant and just keep doing magic for people. Because I wasn't done yet, right? So those times, though, where I did feel kind of like I was burnt out on magic um, was probably due to not magic itself, but due to other things going on in my life Mm -hmm. to where um, it felt like uh, the magic and and those other things were kind of rubbing up against each other in the wrong way. Sure. So, and magic was always the first thing I would try to to uh, back away from to reduce that friction if that makes any sense um so that's only happened once or twice but one time i did get out of magic for a while and when i say a while i mean like maybe a little over six years and during that time i didn't pick up a deck of cards or watch any magic on tv you know just i was out once i was out i was out and once i uh, was once i was um tempted prompted told to get back in <laughs> um it was it was awkward. It was awkward in the sense that, you know, I felt like I had to get my touch back because I felt like I used to have a touch and affinity with the props. And I had to get that back, that kinesthetic familiarity with everything. Totally. Um, and that took a while before I started feeling it again. Um, Why did you drop out? Personal reasons. We'll just leave it at that if that's OK. OK. Yeah. 
but yeah, but there, there were these things going on that created that friction. And in order to resolve it, that was my solution. I look back now and I think to myself, maybe not the best solution. Maybe I should have dropped the other thing instead, you know, but um yeah, uh, that's you know that's what it comes down to in the in the in the end of it. Like tar heroin, you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, if that's your experience, I say go with it. <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, that was so. I got back into it in about 2002, 2000. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know what got me back into it was Bill. You know that son of a gun. He uh, he had been talking to John Mooring, who at that time was editor of Magic Magazine, and uh, John wanted to do a cover story on him, um, and uh, Bill wouldn't do it unless I wrote it. So even though I'd been out of magic for a while, I got this phone call out of the blue from Mooring and he explained to me the situation. So, and I hadn't even talked to Bill in a long time, you know. And uh, so I called Bill and we talked about it. And next thing I knew, we were talking about tricks. And it felt like I was never gone. And I thought, why? Why did I ever back away from this? This is, you know, it was so natural just talking to him about magic. So I just got back in. I could not. Yeah, he kind of reminded me of what it was all about—the the exchange of ideas, the discussing of philosophies and techniques. You know, so blame it on him. I will. Okay, I'm going to go downstairs and go. Fuck. Yeah, I know. Did you? T- <laughs> <laughs> I blame thee. <laughs> what did you? Yeah. What What was the difference coming back after six years? Well, okay. Um, in that period of time, a few things had happened. One. The internet exploded. Mm. So when I, for the first time, searched on the internet for magic videos, Mm. what I saw blew me away because there had been nothing like that, even though only a few years had passed. Mm. Nothing like that when I got out of magic. And I thought, how in the hell have these young guys accomplished so much in so little time? And partly it was because they had this new medium that they've been working with Mm -hmm. for several years now and exchanging information back and forth, not always in the best way. I mean, YouTube, for instance, is a great medium for disrespecting information and just openly sharing it with no real value. Right. Mm -hmm. But but one of the byproducts is that if you have free flowing information like that, you can really progress quickly in a short period of time. Doesn't mean you always understand what you're doing. Videos, I've always uh, thought that video is great for imparting information, but terrible for imparting understanding, mm-hmm. uh, at least the way it's being used today. And I, I would always go to videos for information and go to books for understanding. But when I got back into magic, I found this this explosion that happened, and I just couldn't believe some of the card work I was seeing, for instance. you know. And even though cardistry had gotten its start before I had kind of dropped out, when I got back in, it was full flowered now, and I'm like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. I can't believe these guys are manipulating these playing cards like this. I've never seen anything like it, you know? So that was the first thing. And then the second thing was getting back my own level of comfort with it. You know, it's as if, um, it's not the same as just getting back on the bike. It's mm-hmm. really, you know, you got to learn how to ride that bike all over again. So, um, you know, I would do my double turnovers and they didn't look the same as I remembered them looking. My top and bottom changes didn't look the same. They didn't even feel the same. I'm like, oh, that's that's not how I remember it. Oh, it doesn't. It's it's not there. And it literally took me about a year before I started being able to say to myself, ah, okay, this it feels a little better now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm getting there. And even now, sometimes I think, ugh, <laughs> uh, I need to stay and hit it harder because it's not. I'm not feeling it. You yeah. uh, know, maybe that's just a function of age, right? But yeah, it was that. 
that initial physical awkwardness of trying to get back to where I was. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I don't know how people see me as a technician or a magician these days, but I'm nothing compared to what I used to be when I was younger. You know, I could, I could literally sit down with almost anybody in session for my first session with Bill was literally all night long in a sandwich shop, a 24 hour sandwich shop. We sat from seven in the morning, seven in the evening till seven in the morning without a break and just did trick. And I can't do that now. Not because I'm not physically able to sit there. I don't have the material or the foundation that I used to have. Mm-hmm. But back then I could do all kinds of stuff. I was good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that was then. This yeah. is now. So now I can talk about it, but doing it's a whole different matter. Or at least that's the way I feel about it. Yeah. Yeah. And my approach to magic is different now because I'm older. Uh, back then, I I pretty much had down a lot of the slights that were popular during the day. And now I spend a lot of my time t- trying to take a lot of those slights out. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, it's not that I have anything against slights. I can still do a lot of moves. But I think they should be more carefully placed and used where they benefit and not used where they don't. If there's a better way to do it or a more subtle way to do it. Because I've come to um, the feeling that subtleties can sometimes get as much done as a move with a fraction of the effort. Mm -hmm. And they will almost always fly under the audience's radar much better than a move will. And I'm not dissing moves. I love moves. But you got to use them at the right time in the right place. You got to be a little more discreet about it. So, so yeah, and uh, you know, the, like the oil and water I mentioned, it's almost except for a couple of moves, it's almost all subtleties. It's almost all displays and impressions, you know, things like that. So yeah, it's, I spent a lot of my time trying to take all the moves out. It's just like a fun personal challenge. Mm-hmm. Doesn't always work. <laughs> Sometimes I got to put the move right back in. <laughs> I'm like, oh no. <laughs> Yeah. And then how how does your family feel about having a magician? Oh, they're pretty uh, not caring about it. Doesn't matter one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. You know how some people say, um, like the expert in your own backyard. So you don't you people don't really hire uh, an expert who lives in their town. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll never hire an expert who lives in your same house. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So. Um, you know, uh, I have kids. I actually have grandkids. I have five grandkids. Wow. And, uh, you know, none of them have exhibited any kind of an interest in trying to learn. And I'm not going to press them on it. It's their deal. If they want to learn, I'll show them anything they want to know. But uh, I'm not going to make it happen. I'm not going to force it on them. So, so far it hasn't happened. Doesn't bother me. It's like uh, we had a person come to a Pebble Palooza and just getting started, right? And, uh, so doesn't really isn't really familiar with all the history or is able to accomplish much, and I thought, hmm. Well, if this person comes, one of two things is, are, are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Either uh, this person will end up being very inspired and will commit and work very hard to achieve from that point forward, or this person will become so intimidated that um, they won't work on it at all. And I'm okay with either outcome. Mm-hmm. And in this, and, and, you know, and speaking just in the most general of senses, either outcome is good for magic because if they're not cut for it, they're not cut for it. But if they are, then they are. So uh, it works out to a positive outcome in either way. Mm-hmm. So they're good to go. And do you have an idea about which way that person is leaning? No, of course not. <laughs> I, I didn't know if it was this weekend yeah. or if it was like a no. couple years ago that happened. I don't know. It's, you know, uh, and it's. 
you know, if you remember, I said uh, the Magic Pebble, the forum. I'm, I still to this day, I kind of treat it like it's, it's just a big social experiment. Mm-hmm. This is another, just a social experiment. I'm not attached to any outcome, and I'm not really concerned with. It's not like I'm tracking to see what the results are. You yeah. know, uh, whatever happens is okay. I'm okay with it. You know. Where does that ease come from? I don't know. Just in general. Probably because I'm not smart enough to be aware of what's going on around me half the time. So <laughs> I'm okay with anything that happens. Uh, you, but the, I, I don't know. You know, the people have different outlooks on the world. Mm-hmm. Every person you meet has got their own take on what the world is all about. And this is why you see so many different kinds of magic and magicians. Why you see so many different kinds of painters, musicians, you know. Um, because everybody's bringing their own expression to the mix, right? So, um, and I've got mine. And my view of the world tends to be fairly benevolent. I don't think the world is out to get me. I don't think it's a scary place. If something bad happens to me, it's not because the world was personally trying to get at me, right? Mm -hmm. In 1999, we had a tornado come through our neighborhood, turned the whole house into toothpicks. That was a Disney ride, e-ticket ride. Um, And I remember people at that time, it was a pretty dramatic event. It wiped out the entire neighborhood. So that May 3rd, 1999 tornado. And... um, 318 mile per hour winds, the fastest wind speed ever recorded on the face of the planet. You know, all those specs that come out of it. But I do remember in the aftermath, people asking questions like, why me? Why did this happen to us? And I have never found those kinds of questions to be useful in any way because they don't provide a single answer that you can use to carry yourself forward. Mm -hmm. There is such a thing as an empowering question. Better questions are like, what now? What do we do next? Look around you. What's the most important thing that needs to be taken care of at this moment? Mm-hmm. And then you, those are the questions you ask because those are the ones that guide you throughout this event to get you past it. So then um, this is why, to me, um, I don't take those things personally. This is why outcomes, I don't really have strong attachments to. If this happens, it's fine. If that happens, it's fine because you're still going. You're still yeah. alive. You're still hopefully happy, self-sustaining human being, everything's good, you know? And it's not going to break the world if a single person decides to do magic or not. Big deal. (laughs) Or if a magic forum runs its course, it was great while it lasted. And you have this archive of great conversations that took place over however many years it lasted. Because I guarantee you, if somebody would go back and pull all those conversations out of the database, you would find so much information in there. Guys sharing histories, guys sharing credits, thoughts on moves, strategies, audience management. You guys got, you got guys like Curtis Cam and Tom Stone and, you know, and uh, Jack Carpenter and all these people putting their two cents worth in there about how to do this and how to do that and, what to do about this. And we've got Kiko Pastor and Tyler Wilson and Pipo from Spain and, you know, Dennis Bear. And it's just a great group. And, you know, if you were to look through all those thoughts, if you were somehow able to organize all those thoughts, you'd have a really massive wealth of information on your hands. I think, you know, just in that little database behind mm-hmm. the forum, you know. Just your little, your little yeah. baby. It's like our own little Conjuring Arts library. Just all <laughs> massively disorganized and strung out through these conversations. I think there's a lot more dick jokes, though. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> um, well, just a couple of questions mm-hmm. to finish up. What's sure, your sure. favorite non-magic book? 
Oh, gosh, there are so many. So a gentleman by the name of, I presume his name is pronounced Guy, or might be pronounced Guy, G-U-Y, Murchie, M-U-R-C-H-I-E. He wrote a book called, um, I think it was called, now that I want to say it, suddenly it flies from my head, uh, The Seven Mysteries of Life. I think that's it. In which he details um, almost everything about the way the world works. And it's not fantastic stuff he made up. It's all science, things that we know, Mm -hmm. but he interlinks them in different ways. Um, And from that book, I learned how viruses work and how they change, actually rewrite DNA. I learned that the largest single living organism is this huge grove of trees that all share one root system. Um, It's massive. I learned uh, about how weather works and how rocks travel. I learned that everybody on the face of the planet is related by at least the 34th cousin. We're all much more closely related than we think. And there is no such thing as a pure bloodline and that everybody has a little bit of Polish, a little bit of German, a little bit of um, African, a little bit of uh, sub-Saharan, a little bit of Chinese, because all bloodlines have crossed at some point in human history. And these are all fascinating things to me to learn. So that's one of my favorite books because there's it just the, the book is so textured and full of all this stuff that interconnects and weaves together. Mm-hmm. Another favorite book of mine is uh, Gerdell Escher Bach, written by Douglas Hofstetter. Um, he took over Martin Gardner's um, column in Scientific American when Martin Gardner retired. He called his meta, Metamagical Themas, which was an anagram of mathematical games. And But he wrote this book called Gerdell Escher Bach, and it was of a similar vein from a mathematical sense. And he talks about Kurt Goodell, the German mathematician, and Johann Sebastian Bach, mm-hmm. and uh, M.C. Escher, the artist, and how their works, their different works, actually parallel each other in themes Mm -hmm. and how they all relate to understandings of the world and the way the world operates. But he does it through metaphors using Lewis Carroll characters and he talks about math problems, but he brings them to a more lifelike way so you don't Mm -hmm. feel bogged down by formulas. And it's just an excellent book. Now, a lot of it is like one of those books where you say, I'm going to come back to this page later. You're going to get a lot of that in there, but such a fascinating book. And a one you know, the Pulitzer Prize. So I love those kinds of books. Sure. Um, Chaos Theory by James Glick was a great book. I love that one. Uh, there's a book I, I found in the bookstore just the other day, and I haven't bought it yet. I was reading it in the bookstore. It's just called The Philosophy Book. No, it's called The Book of Philosophy. Mm-hmm. And all it does, one or two pages each for each uh, period of philosophy, it just describes who this person was, what he thought philosophically, what he contributed to the whole philosophical um, game. And then, uh, like, uh, Thales was the first, and then you go on and you go through uh, uh, Aristotle and all these people and all through Confucius and Lao Tse, and it's, it basically transcribes the history of the philosophies of the world. And uh, it's put out by this uh, uh, company called DK Press, and there's a whole series of them. So I have plans to buy them all at one point. <laughs> I just love the format, you know. Yeah. Uh, they have the Book of Philosophy, and they have one called the Book of Science, and one called the Book of Economics, one called the Book of Psychology, which I'm interested in that one because it would break down all the different psychological, you know, uh, theories and uh, schools of thought mm-hmm. in a in a uh, what's the word. Uh, Arrange my time. Thank you. Chronological order from beginning to the current day. So I would be able to have a better understanding of of those schools of thought because Mm -hmm. I can see the timeline from one idea to the next. That kind of stuff fascinates me. I love books on quantum physics. I love books on philosophy, science, mathematics, recreational mathematics, more than pure mathematics. Mm -hmm. Um, I listen to a a lot of podcasts like uh, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson's podcast. Star Talk. Exactly. Yeah, that one. 
Uh, and, um, you know, so those are some of my favorite books recently. Those books. Favorite films? One of my long-standing classic films is Fiddler on the Roof. Um, I'm not always a fan of musicals, but that one's just such a great story. It has such heart, you know, and I get sad for what happens to the various people in there. And um, so What other favorite films have impressed me? Uh, I was very impressed by um, Saving Private Ryan, but I didn't like the movie. I was just impressed by it. It was hard. It was a hard movie to, for me to watch because sure. I'm the kind of guy I'm sitting there and I'm watching the opening scenes where all these people are getting slaughtered on the Omaha beach. And I'm thinking, why is war in this? I mean, I get why we had to defeat this threat to the world at that point, but it just makes me angry to see that this is happening. Mm-hmm. So that was a tough movie to watch. But when it got to the end of the movie with the final theme about that one character redemption, I'm like, oh, I'm just fucking losing it right now, you know? But I won't watch the movie again. I just yeah. thought it was a great movie. But I also like more fantastical movies, you know, or series, Jessica Jones, or even Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is a, you know, pure fantasy. But it's just so much fun, right? Um, or the movie The Watchmen, things like that, with yeah. the darker themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like almost any kind of movie that has an intelligently ripped, written script that has good themes to it that that make you think oh okay i hadn't thought of it quite that way before mm-hmm. yeah so then favorite magic book oh gosh so many expert at the card table is a good one mm-hmm. different books for different reasons i really do like royal, royal road to card magic even though it's dated but i still love the approach and I think it's a great book to hand to anybody who's just starting out. Expert Card Technique is a wonderful book. Um, you know, when you steal from the best, you get a good book out of it. Yep. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, the Brother Hammond book, when it came out, had an impact on me. Uh, it changed my uh, way of thinking about handling packets of cards. Mm-hmm. Um, um, what other books have there been? The Vernon Biography that came out few years back i thought was pretty damn good the vernon companion book no the one that david ben wrote oh yes okay yeah Yeah, i I enjoyed that i enjoyed it much um but the vernon chronicles were good Mm -hmm. but as good as those books were and the vernon uh the one that david ben wrote um i still like the older vernon books you know the inner secrets and the die vernon book of magic and i think those are foundational books so i have a lot of respect for them even though when I started getting seriously involved in magic, I read mostly Marlowe. And I still have a love for the unexpected card book and Kabbalah and Hierophant and all that. So I've got, you know, this coming at me from both sides. I've got the engineering, the technical expert engineering of Marlowe um, interweaving. <coughs> Bless you, oh, attention seeker. <laughs> I've got the, uh, the uh, wonderful engineering and thinking of Marlowe interweaving with the artistic sensibilities of Vernon, mm. you know. And... Uh, uh, I just I just love that contrast, but I love putting the two together. You know, it's like one of the reasons I like Bill, his magic so much. I've never I haven't seen very many people who could do what many would consider that technical magic, but make it so entertaining and pleasing to watch. Mm-hmm. You know, because Bill does a lot of Marlowe routines, just straight flat out Marlowe routines that I would that I or other people might read in the book and think, ah, it's not going to fly. That's not commercial. That's all for a magician. It doesn't matter to him. You know, he, he, he can do it. He can do it. 
Those are those the answers you were seeking, kind yeah, of? Great. Okay. And then the last question. My favorite dirty word. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite dirty word? Um, wh when was the time that you were just totally, completely astonished? Like you were In magic? Yeah. So many times. I love being in a, watching a lecture uh -huh. or a presentation of any kind and trying to turn off my magician's mind. Years and years ago, John Kennedy came through Oklahoma City and I'm watching him give his lecture. And at one point he pops open a can of soda and he pours himself a glass because he's thirsty and he drinks it and he puts it down. He does another trick. So he's thirsty and he pours another glass, empties the can, drinks it, does another trick. He's thirsty, pours another glass from an empty can, drinks it, does another trick. He's thirsty, pours another glass from an empty can, drinks it, does another trick. He's thirsty again, no more Coke in the can. Waves his hand over it, the can seals itself up. He pops the top again, pours himself another glass. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? I don't, I don't, I don't understand. I don't get this, you know? Uh -huh. Gaetan Bloom, I saw him lecture one time. So many wonderful ideas, just astonishing. And, you know, I have to turn off that analytical side, but I love being taken aback by the trick. There were a couple of things I saw this morning when the guys from Pebble Palooza were downstairs you know, performing for each other. I'm like, oh, that's good. I didn't see that coming. Mm -hmm. You know, wow, that's nice. He got so far ahead of me on that one. I'm still thinking like a magician would, yeah. but I still am very entertained by the fact that I was so caught off guard by mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Very, being very caught good. off guard is the best. Oh, it's absolutely wonderful. I love being fooled. And the thing is, a lot of times, no, almost all the time, especially when somebody fools me, I will never ask how it's done. Mm -hmm. I honestly don't want to know. I'm, one, I'm like one of those laymen who says, I don't want to know. I really don't want to know. I absolutely don't. Tony Chang has fooled me so many times with his wonderful card magic. And I've never once asked him, how do you do that? I absolutely... Absolutely don't want to know. He ever do this thing for you with this, where you put your fingers like a photo frame yep. and he moves the deck underneath the car chain? I don't want to know how. I, I, of course, I have a sense of how it works. Sure. I don't want to ask him. I flat out don't want to know. He's done so many things for me like that. I'm just like, I'm good with it. Yep. I'm at, that's brilliant. Yeah. So uh, I have a lot of respect for Tony because of that, because his magic is so unique. And while I don't always go for eye candy or visual magic, his is visual and effective magic because mm -hmm. it will still works inside your brain. Mm -hmm. It's not just for the eyes. And there are some other magicians like that, that I'm just like, that's absolutely brilliant. Fantastic. I love it. We're good. Yeah. Don't, no, no, don't, don't, don't show me. Don't tell I, me. I, I can see I about to it. open his it. mouth. I can yeah, see yeah. about to, Nope. I don't want to know. Yeah. It's just, I, it's just, I love that experience. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Why is that amazing? No, I, I love it. I just think it's beautiful because yeah. I, yeah. I feel similarly. It's yeah. Like, if I get yeah. fooled, why on earth is that? That's the thing mm -hmm. I've been looking for. I don't yeah. want to then immediately add it into all the other stuff that I already have. Right. Yeah. You know, magic can achieve so many things for us. Some people have gotten very rich off of magic. Some people have... Uh, um, had wonderful lives because of magic. Maybe they weren't financially successful, but they were able to travel or they're able to do certain things or go on cruises all around the world because they're doing magic on the cruise ship or whatever. Um, and that's all fantastic. But magic can also um, help us interact with people. And that's really kind of like 
you know, that's kind of like the lifeblood of getting along in the world. So there's a, that has a substance to it that all that other stuff can't give you. And I'm not saying it's better than being rich, (laughs) but uh, I'm just saying it is very meaningful and magic has been able to give me that. And I'm always very thankful for it. Just being able to meet new people. I met you through magic. Mm -hmm. I consider you a great friend. And I really like what you're doing with the podcast. It's so flattering that you would even ask me to be a part of it. So thank you very much for that. Very welcome. And I could not be more appreciative. I really, I really do love what you're doing. Well, thank you. I love you and I think you're wonderful. You're welcome. (laughs) I don't don't know what else to say. I'm kind of awkward now, but uh, thanks. Thanks so much for listening to Magical Thinking. If you enjoyed the show, head over to MagicalThinkingPodcast.com to hear more episodes and discover new ways to support the show. Check out ArtOfMagic.com to learn magic and cardistry, and visit artofplay.com for your playing card, board game, and whimsical interior decorating needs. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can email me directly at me at elliotterrell.com. That's M-E at E-L-L-I-O-T-T-T-E-R-R-A-L.com. And I'll be happy to respond to any questions or comments you may have. Before you forget, head into your podcast app and leave a rating and a review for Magical Thinking. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.